Morning, everyone. It is another busy day ahead. Of course, we are following everything that has happened over the weekend, what is going on with the U.S. banking system. Let's get started with five things to know for this Tuesday, March 14th. All eyes are going to stay on Wall Street where they have been locked as the race is on to avoid the collapse of other regional U.S. banks. Several of them have been suffering steep stock drops on Monday, even as the government came out, President Biden himself, trying to calm nerves with financial support. All of this turmoil is coming as the Fed is awaiting a highly anticipated inflation report that we are expected to get this morning. And no relief. What is going on? Dueling storms set to pound the east and the west coast, both coasts. Nor'easter forecast to bring heavy rain, wind, snow to millions in the northeast. California bracing for yet another round of severe flooding. Also this, Governor Ron DeSantis breaking from many in his own party on the war in Ukraine. The likely presidential candidate told Fox News that protecting Ukraine is not vital to U.S. interests. Instead, he called it a distraction to bigger challenges here at home. Also, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is out of the hospital. That is good news this morning. His spokesman says he's recovering well from a concussion he suffered last week during that fall. He is 81 years old. He also suffered, we've learned, a minor rib fracture. He will be getting physical therapy at a rehab facility before he heads home. Also, a heartfelt request from one president to another. President Biden says former President Jimmy Carter asked him to deliver his eulogy when he passes. Carter remains in hospice care at his home in Plains, Georgia. CNN This Morning starts now. Welcome in, everybody. Good to see you. So, Poppy, how bad is it that they are? They have six banks under review right now. Is it possible downgrade? Well, that's Moody's. That's one firm looking at these smaller regional banks. I think the Biden administration thought this was contained. We all hope it's contained to these two banks plus a crypto firm. But this morning, we don't know. I mean, shareholders are putting so much pressure. Really, I mean, look, First Republic, that's a big, well-known bank. The shares are down 60% this morning. Yeah, we thought that it was possibly, you know, it would stem the tide. We heard folks on our air yesterday saying, oh, it's some of it saying, well, we think this is over. And another saying, this is just the beginning. And it clearly and I think seems to be. Yeah, we're really cautious about that. I mean, President Biden came out and tried to say that, you know, the U.S. banking system is safe and secure. But big questions. And I think people are rightfully concerned about what could be next. As they should be. That's where we begin. We right? do begin this morning with a growing fallout from the largest bank failure in the 2008 since the 2008 financial crisis, regional banks across the nation grappling with turmoil, plunging stock prices, even after President Biden took emergency action, tried to ease panic following back-to-back collapses of Signature Bank and Silicon Valley Bank. We're keeping a close eye on Wall Street this morning to see if banks can recover. After yesterday's free fall, the shares of more than two dozen banks plummeted. This is even after President Biden tried to assure markets before the open. Americans can rest assured that our banking system is safe. Your deposits are safe. Let me also assure you, we will not stop at this. We'll do whatever is needed. Not assure a lot of spooked customers. Look at the dramatic fallout yesterday for these four banks. As we just said, shares of First Republic were down 60 percent. We'll get new inflation numbers this morning in just about two hours. The Fed is trying to face an incredibly delicate balancing act of raising interest rates to fight inflation while also trying to prevent more banks from collapsing. Our chief business correspondent, Christine Romans, is here this morning. I mean, 
It's like they cannot get a worse scenario. And today we're going to get core inflation numbers. And then the question becomes, does the Fed address inflation head on? Or do they try to prevent more bank collapses? And is this whole banking drama disinflationary, taking some of the pressure off the Fed? So there's so many conflicting storylines here. Um, Let's look at what happened to those regional banks yesterday. They really got slammed. A 60% move, as you know, for a stock in one day is real. It just it shows extreme concern about what's on the balance sheets of these banks and also concern that depositors are going to walk away and go to a bigger bank. Now, we were told by a senior uh, Treasury official yesterday that, in fact, those deposit outflows are slowing. That's good news for these. And this morning, I'm seeing pre-market trading of these banks. They're up 20 percent, 10 percent. So we'll look for some stabilization there today. Isn't something that is so fundamentally different from 2008 the fact that we're not talking about toxic assets? Oh, yeah. These are are the opposite of toxic assets. These banks have Treasury securities or mortgage-backed securities on their on their books. And so they're just trying, with the Fed having raised interest rates so aggressively, now those are worth a lot less, and they're just trying to balance that imbalance, frankly. Can the Fed do both at the same time? Can they keep raising rates to attack inflation without making these, what are safe yeah. uh, securities, fixed income securities, um, less attractive to potential buyers? I think there's a feeling the Fed is going to go more slowly. And this is what the Fed is balancing. <laughs> this is the delicate balancing act of the Fed uh, right now. The next meeting is March 22nd. We have this big CPI report that's coming today. And the, the feeling is, look, the chances of no rate hike has dr- risen dramatically since this banking drama. And now a lot of people are thinking it's going to be more like 25 basis points. When just a week ago, the Fed chief was saying, right. preparing us for 50 basis points. And again, what I keep hearing is all of this is disinflationary. This is in a weird way, not what the Fed designed, but working, uh, working toward the Fed's goal Why? of cooling inflation. Because there are some skeptics of that argument. There are, but that's the big discussion this morning. If they're going to slow lending, right? If you're going to have this frothy part of the market, which mm-hmm. is startups and crypto, which has been cooled, you know, when you're getting some of the, um, the, the easy money out of the system, that could be working in the Fed's favor. Okay, so we're going to get a few hours from now a really important inflation reading. The Consumer Price Index, and this is the last big reading on inflation, I think, one of the last big readings before the Fed meets. And 6% for the year-over-year number. If you look at this chart here, you can see clearly consumer inflation is peaking. If you go to the grocery store, you might not agree with me, but I'm telling you (laughs) that the overall number has been moving in the right direction, but still much higher than the 2% number the Fed would like to see. So we'll be watching very closely at 8.30 to see what this signals about I don't believe you because my kids wanted pickles last night and they were almost seven bucks. Were they really? That's just New York. I, I guess. went to the grocery store recently. I got 10 things and everything was $10 or more. Like a thing of Nutella. I, I felt know. Like my kids are going to eat me out of house and home. Lucky kid. Yes, your three boys will. Christine <laughs> Romans, thank you very much. <laughs> sorry, oh, sorry. I was just talking to my friend Poppy. <laughs> Yeah, we'll get to our grocery list later on. But for now, I want to bring in CNN economics commentator and Washington Post opinion columnist Catherine Rampell and our CNN reporter Matt Egan. Both of you have been covering this over the last several days. Matt, are you surprised that what the president said yesterday was not enough to just calm everybody down and help these regional banks out? Um, I'm not surprised only in the sense that, you know, fear is a powerful thing. Um, A lot of this is psychological. Um, We haven't talked about, you know, a major bank failing in a long time. And I think people are understandably nervous. But I do think that um, everyone needs to kind of take a deep breath. Remember, the FDIC insures up to 
thousand dollars on deposits, well, right? And, the everything now. Well, right, <laughs> but always they've changed. been doing two hundred fifty thousand. I mean, that for, for vast majority of people, that that covers it. And now they're saying, listen, we'll actually insure more than that, at least in these instances when these two banks um, collapse. So I, I do think that everyone needs to kind of. Calm down a, a bit here. Okay, psychological. Do you agree with that? Because uh, listen, we have the the this in uh, Moody's in. They're going to place six other U.S. banks on on review for potential downgrades. I mean that has a ripple effect on the economy. Do you think it's mostly psychological? Do you agree with Matt that we should calm down? I think people are actually looking at the balance sheets of these banks and saying, hmm, maybe things are not as solid as we once assumed. Maybe they are um, withstanding the stress of rate hikes a little bit more poorly than people had appreciated before. I mean, if, if you had looked... Some of these risks should have been evident, especially with Silicon Valley Bank, but with some of the other banks as well. You know, the fact that they didn't guard against interest rate risk, for example, that was relatively well known if you paid attention. Now, most of the American public would not have done so, but now investors are doing so. Regulators, belatedly, it seems like, are doing so. So, yes, a lot of this is sort of irrational fear, but I think that there actually is um, a reason to take another look, to reassess at the very least how these banks are doing, and maybe to assume that they may be subject to more regulation, which will allow them to do less risky things in the future, which could also curb some of their profits. So there are a lot of things going on here. Matt, you spoke to a a former really high-ranking Fed official and FDIC official yesterday who thinks the Fed can walk that tightrope. Well, yeah, I talked to Tom Honig. He was a former vice chair at the FDIC, former KC Fed uh, president. And, and he said, listen, the, the Fed is basically in this no-win situation because if they keep raising interest rates, that could cause more pressure to the banking system. But if they don't, that could actually cause more instability in his view because we still have this inflation situation, right? And inflation is still the number one problem in the economy. And so his argument is, the Fed is in a tough spot, but they have to keep raising interest rates because in the long run, that is what will actually create stability. If they do downgrade the, um, for these banks, these six banks that Moody's has put on its list, what are the implications of that? Uh, certainly not good for the stock prices for those banks. Whether it spooks depositors, I think we don't know. It does look like the emergency measures that were taken over the weekend for Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank stemmed some of the outflow of deposits from these other banks. Uh, didn't stop it, but it does seem like, you know, if people were running in to pull their money out of Western Alliance or First Republic or whatever before, maybe they calmed down a little bit because to Poppy's point, they were like, hmm, maybe the FDIC actually is insuring everything that I have there, not just up to that usual cap. Uh, But, you know, the investors still got wiped out. Um, The the, the equity holders got wiped out. The bondholders look like they're going to get wiped out as well. We don't know. Depends on, like, Mm -hmm. how, you know, how much, what the assets are actually worth in the end. Mm. Um, But you could imagine that you'll see sort of similar analogies drawn to these other banks that if, in fact, they're not as creditworthy, then the investors, the bondholders might say, mm, maybe not a good invest, not a good place to Just keep my be- money. Before we go, um, Catherine, you tweeted, what do bailouts, price gouging and porn have in common? No one can precisely define any of them, but we know it when we see it. Referencing <laughs> Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart's famous line, I know it when I see it about pornography. Uh-huh. The Biden administration keeps saying this is not a bailout. But let's be straight with the American people. 
isn't it, especially with that lending well, facility as well? what is a well? bailout? We all know a bailout is a bad thing. It's a toxic word, and you don't want the thing that you were responsible for to be a bailout. But look, this was a rescue for the depositors, right? Um, they were getting insurance they did not pay for in the sense that if they had several million dollars in this bank, it was insured. They were not having to, you know, pay effectively get get uh, assessed FDIC fees for that insurance. So it was a rescue for them. Now, I'm sympathetic. I think that probably it was the right thing to do because there were a lot of innocent bystanders bystanders, people who might not have been paid, you know, regular workers who would not have been paid if this money had been um, made unavailable and they just lost it. But it was a rescue of some kind. Is it is it the B word? I don't know. But it goes back to what you said in the beginning. And I think that, correct me if I'm wrong, you were saying that at least now there's more of a review. If there is some good news in this, we're going to be checking to make sure that these banks can pass a stress test. One hopes. Yeah. One hopes. I mean, it certainly seems like somebody was asleep at the switch before. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Matt. We appreciate it. Thanks. We're going to move on now. We've got to talk about the weather because more than 20 million people are under winter weather alerts this morning as a huge nor'easter, the first of the season, is bearing down on New England and New York is declaring a state of emergency. The region is bracing for up to two feet of snow and dangerously strong storms, which could lead to widespread power outages. Straight now to CNN's Derek Van Dam, live in Worcester, Massachusetts, with more. Wow, Derek, good morning. Quite a different scene than what we're seeing in New York. It's a little <laughs> drizzly here, but you got a bit more. What, what are you seeing on the ground? Let's expect it. Yeah, we've got a cold, quite frankly, miserable rain here in Worcester, but that's the precision, hairline precision of forecasting these uh, nor'easters. I want you to see what's over my left-hand shoulder here, and uh, we're actually at a salt barn in Worcester County, and uh, this is the pre-deployment of the salt trucks and the brine trucks that are going to help treat the roads here in and around uh, the higher elevations of uh, interior Massachusetts. Now, uh, this storm system is edged warmer, and that's the problem because that's why we're receiving rain. But it's going to change later this afternoon, and conditions on the roads are going to deteriorate very quickly. Uh, yesterday at this time, we were talking to the director of the Weather Prediction Center, Dr. David Novak, and he told us that his greatest concerns with this storm is that the heavy, wet snow that will eventually accumulate will bring down power lines and bring down trees as well. So the potential for power outages because the wind is going to pick up. I just looked at some of the graphics here closely and I want you to see just how close that rain snow line is. You can see it's rain in Boston, uh, very light drizzle in New York, but uh, just on the interior, Berkshire into the Catskills, it is snowing hard, but it is a heavy, wet snowfall. So these uh, uh, salt trucks at the salt barn here in Worcester are going to make all the difference for the roadways as the temperatures drop, the snow starts to form. In fact, I want my cameraman to pan around to this light here. These are the first snowflakes that we've seen from this nor'easter. So the change is happening and uh, we're gonna start seeing things more of a winter wonderland here in the hours to come uh, as this nor'easter takes grip on the northeast. Don. Derek Van Dam, Worcester Mass, be safe. We'll see you soon, thanks. All right, and from New York to storm-ravaged California, where much of the state is under flood watches and wind alerts this morning, there are new warnings in communities ranging from San Jose to Los Angeles that are in danger of serious flash flooding and mudslides. Our CNN meteorologist Chad Myers is live in the Weather Center. Chad, I know you've been tracking all of this. If you're waking up in California this morning, what do you need to know? 
that there is going to be another atmospheric river approach by 7 o'clock local time, your time. And there will be significant flooding again. Not because this is a bigger storm than the one for the weekend, but because we have pre-existing conditions. Dr. Gupta talks about that all the time. But the pre-existing conditions, there's no place for this rain to go. This rain is all going to just run off. Here is the atmospheric river. It's going to move on shore today. The one you see over here is actually going to go south of California. Great news, it's going to miss. So at least we're not worried about the second one in line. But here comes the rain right now. Rain is already falling. We are seeing these areas here with the wind advisories you just talked about. There will be wind on top of this very flooded land. Trees that are sitting in mud with 50 mile per hour gusts. Trees are coming down. Power lines are coming down. It is going to be a very difficult day in California today. Difficult in the mountains again. We're going to see an awful lot of snow. The snow is going to be feet deep again above about 6,000 feet. But it's the rainfall that is going to run off that's going to be the problem. Look at L.A., 11 o'clock tonight. If you're flooded last time, you may flood again this time. Okay. Yeah. And that is not exactly what they wanted to hear in that forecast today. No. Chad Myers, I know you'll stay on top of it. Thank you. Also today, President Trump is digging in when it comes to a potential candidate, Ron DeSantis, as he is campaigning in the same Iowa City that the Florida governor was in just a few days ago. We have brand new CNN polling showing what Republican voters want in their 2024 candidate. CNN's David Chalian is standing by with the numbers. Do you have final four picks? March Madness kicks off today. Duke is in the dance, but without the legendary Coach K, he is on the sidelines for the first time in 42 years. Which team he thinks could go all the way to win the championship? Former president taking his 2020 2024 campaign to Iowa last night, where he sharpened his attacks against Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Take a listen. Today, and I have the sanctus, the sanctimonious, the sanctus. Now, Ron DeSantis strongly opposed ethanol. Do you know that? And we don't even know if he's running, but I might as well tell you. If he's not running, I'll say he was fine on ethanol. Don't worry about it. And he also fought against Social Security. He wanted to decimate it and voted against it three times. Voted against Social Security. That's a bad one. But you have to remember, Ron was a disciple of Paul Ryan who is a rhino loser who currently is destroying Fox. And to be honest with you, Ron reminds me a lot of Mitt Romney. Well, that could be 2016 or it could be 2020. Same old thing over and over again. This was Trump's first visit to Iowa since he announced his bid for the White House and follows visits by none other than Ron DeSantis himself and Trump's primary challenger, Nikki Haley. Brand new scene in polling this morning painting a picture of a divided party heading into the race for GOP presidential nominee. And for more on that, we turn to CNN political director David Chalian this morning. David, we're lucky to have you bright and early morning, on a Tuesday sir. morning. Good morning. Thank you so much. Why is Trump spending so much time attacking Ron DeSantis? I kind of know the answer, but I yeah, want to hear I it from you. A very leading question, Don, but uh, because clearly uh, DeSantis is his closest competitor. What we did is sort of get a baseline. At the starting gate of this race, we talked to Republicans and Republican-leaning independents who tell us they are likely to participate in the nomination process. And take a look here. Among first choice, Donald Trump's at 40 percent. 
Ron DeSantis at 36%, nobody else in double digits. This is why he's spending a lot of time on DeSantis. You talk about the divide in the party, Don. The education divide is one to watch throughout this entire cycle. It's really a fault line in American politics, but so is it inside the Republican Party. Among college graduates in this Republican, Republican leaner universe, Trump's at 23% support. DeSantis is at 41% support. Pence at 8, Haley at 12%. Without a college degree, this is this is Trump's homeland. 48% support here. DeSantis at 34% support and single digits for Pence and Haley. Also, we want to see there's room for movement, right? It's so early. People aren't even going to vote for nearly another year or so. 60% of those in this poll tell us they're kind of locked into who they're definitely going to support as their first choice. 40%, a healthy chunk here, might change their mind. But look at it when you look by the candidate supporters. 76% of Trump supporters say they are locked in. They're definitely going to support their first choice candidate. He's got really sticky support. 59% of DeSantis supporters uh, say the same thing. What about cultural concerns, David? Where does that fall? Yeah, Poppy, I kind of look at this as like the mood music for uh, where the Republican electorate is as this campaign is getting underway. And it's a pretty dour mood. 30% say America's best days are ahead of us. 70% of these Republicans and Republican-leaning independents say that the best days are behind us. Compare that over time. Again, that 30% best days are ahead of us. When Donald Trump was in office, that was at 77% among Republicans. It's, it was at 43% on sort of the eve of the general election in 2016, where Donald Trump scored his surprise victory. You mentioned cultural issues. We asked about what is the effect of this increasing diversity in American culture? Is it mostly enriching or mostly threatening? Well, 61% of Republicans called it mostly enriching. 38% say the increasing diversity in American culture is mostly threatening. And on gender identity, you want to know why you're hearing the candidates talk so much about gender identity? We asked, are American values on gender identity and sexual orientation changing for the worse or changing for the better? Look at this. Nearly 8 in 10 Republicans say changing for the worse. Hmm. I mean, I'm fascinated with these numbers, David, especially the one I think that will be of the biggest concern to Trump is also when it comes to the GOP primary electorate, it says will definitely support their first choice candidate, 60 percent, might change their mind, 40 percent. I mean, that is a, a number that they will be paying attention to. But David, I also want to ask you about some significant news we learned overnight, which is probably the clearest view yet we have of where Ron DeSantis stands on a major foreign policy question for this election, which is Ukraine. And his statement that he gave to Fox News said, essentially, that while the U.S. has many vital national interests, becoming further entangled in a territorial dispute between Ukraine and Russia is not one of them. That does put him in a, a camp with, with Trump compared to other Republican hopefuls. 
Totally, Caitlin. It, it is a fascinating uh, development. He had sort of been hinting he was more in this isolationist wing of the party. But this is the clearest comment we've gotten yet from Ron DeSantis. And you just heard the sound that you guys were playing from Trump last night in Iowa, uh, trying to sort of put DeSantis in, in the category of uh, former House Speaker Paul Ryan or uh, Jeb Bush, Mitt Romney. Well, here's an example where DeSantis actually is aligning with Trump on Ukraine. The issue is, is Ukraine going to be a driving issue in this campaign? And if you look here among Republicans, we asked most important issue in the 2024 Republican presidential primary, far and away, it's the economy at 32 percent, then immigration at 16 percent, candidate qualities at 13 percent. You see, you get down 9 percent, say, foreign policy here. Also, I think this is really interesting, guys, and something to watch. Are you looking for somebody who shares your positions or are you looking for somebody who can defeat Joe Biden? That's your ultimate goal in this Republican nomination race. You see here, it's about a 60-40 split. 59% are looking for a Republican candidate who shares their positions. 41% looking for somebody with a strong chance of beating Biden. So what if their position, though, is to I beat was, Biden? Was, <laughs> or what, wait, why does it matter what their position is if they can't win? Can't. But okay, <laughs> David. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, David. Do you remember when Ron DeSantis said in 2015, just hit Obama for for not sending more weapons to Ukraine after Crimea? It was a completely different position. He said President Obama was making a mistake. Why do you think that? He also didn't say he didn't mention when he talked about this territorial thing that actually Russia invaded Ukraine's territory. But it's not just a territorial. Yeah, but he's saying basically it's not our problem. And it's not he's saying with what's going on in the border and other issues that the U.S. has, that's not uh, the top of list the list for him. He completely did in 2015 after Russia illegally annexed Crimea. He hit Obama for not supplying Ukraine with weapons. He's congressman then. Now he's a presidential candidate, well, potentially a presidential candidate. We should be clear. So he's not little actually asterisk. entered. Little, little asterisk. I know. Yeah. Sometimes we get Just ahead of talking one. about it. Like That's he's already it. in the race. Yeah, but and well, people look in how his well office. he's polling. What? Yeah. People in his office. What? They're like, he's not in the race yet. You know? No, he's in the race. But, but yeah. this is going to be one of the biggest foreign policy issues for Republicans. And as report has been softening among some Republicans for supporting Ukraine, they are drawing a clear line between them and like the Nikki Haley's. Do you Mike think Pompeo's. he's following the polling? Because the polling just in January showed a huge decline in terms of Republican support for this ongoing war. Yeah, maybe or maybe he is. He has a more. We don't know anything but really about his foreign policy views. That's the thing. And he's coming out clearly being more isolationist than uh, than we knew. Yeah. I think it's going to be an issue for Democrats. And even in the beginning of the war, the question was how long, what was going to be the American patience and uh-huh. interest in continuing this long? war, especially if, if the economy doesn't get better. Why are we sending all this money to, the question is, I'm not saying this, why are we sending all this money to Ukraine when at home people are hurting? Um, so that's going to be for both Democrats and Republicans. Of course, uh, you know, people care about democracy, should support the people of Ukraine, mm-hmm. but that is going to be a lingering question and a big one leading up to the election. I think you're right. It's going to mm-hmm. be a big question. And speaking of Ukraine, Its future could hinge on the outcome of a key piece of territory, according to Ukraine's President Zelensky, seen in live on the ground in eastern Ukraine. Overnight, Ukrainian President Zelensky is describing the latest challenges in his country in pretty stark terms as the intense fighting in the eastern city of Bakhmut is continuing. 
The situation in the East is very tough and very painful. We need to destroy the enemy's military power, and we will. Bilohorivka and Marinka, Avdivka and Bakhmut, Kuledar and Kamyanka, and all other places where our future is being decided, where our future, the future of all Ukrainians, is being fought for. Zelensky still vowing to defeat Russia as CNN's Ivan Watson is live in Kramatorsk, Ukraine. Right in front of a building that we are told was just hit by a missile strike. What are you seeing on the ground there? I can see the damage behind you. Yeah, and we'll give you a little tour here, Caitlin. Uh, We are in this eastern city of Kramatorsk. As you can see, uh, this is part of the destruction caused by what Ukrainian officials say was a Russian strike uh, hitting a three-story apartment building uh, in this town. The authorities say at least one person was killed, another is in critical condition, other people wounded as well. The explosion, eyewitnesses say, happened exactly six hours ago at 8.30 in the morning, and it has shattered windows all throughout the Uh, uh, the courtyard here where there are other similar buildings uh, and at a kindergarten, which is just behind where Tom is right now, shattering all the windows there. Uh, One of the remarkable things about what we're seeing right now is no one's complaining. No one is crying. People are just getting on with the work of cleaning up the destruction, of cleaning up what is left of their homes, for example. As you can see, uh, somebody's taking their collection of books uh, out of their apartment, which probably is not going to be livable uh, for the near future right now. Uh, This is not the first time that the city has been hit by a deadly Russian projectile. It has been pounded before by Russian rockets and missiles. Uh, We are located about 25 kilometers away from a very active front line, 15 miles. And I've operated in those areas in the past couple days. The artillery is thundering kind of around the clock there. There's a huge Ukrainian military presence there. The kindergarten that I visited, thankfully, mercifully, had no children there. They were evacuated. The kindergarten's been closed for some six months. This is part of the reality of what people are living in, Ukrainians, in eastern Ukraine. Back to you. Yeah, it is remarkable to see that, to see a kindergarten gets hit, these buildings get hit, and you're you're seeing people, they were so normalized to this, so desensitized to this, they're going through stacks of books outside of it. Ivan Watson, fantastic reporting. Thank you so much. Well, a lawyer for President Trump sitting down with prosecutors right here in New York. The argument she made against the charges there possibly weighing in the hush money case involving the former commander in chief. That's ahead. So prosecutors here in New York are hearing from the team of Trump lawyers ahead of potential indictment ahead of a potential indictment against former president and current 2024 candidate in connection with the alleged Stormy Daniels hush money case. The president's former attorney, Michael Cohen, testified before a grand jury Monday. That's a big development. And CNN has learned one of Trump's current attorneys also had some face time with the DA's office. Kara Scannell is here to explain it all to us. This is one of Trump's attorneys. Her name is Susan Necklace. What is she telling you? Right. So I talked to Susan Necklace yesterday. She said that she went in fairly recently to meet with the DA's office to plead their case. That's a fairly normal thing to say you should not bring charges against my client. Now, she said her takeaway was she thought they were still struggling to come up with a legal theory. And she argued to them that they shouldn't bring this. Other prosecutors had passed on this. You know, and the issue here is 
they charge him with falsifying business records and then that's a misdemeanor or do they charge him with falsifying business records and, you know, to commit or conceal another crime? In this case, that could be campaign finance. That's what this is all about, this payment. And now she's been making this argument privately and she said she's there. They don't have any scheduled follow up meetings. They're kind of in this wait and see mode to see what the DA's office is going to do. You know, another of his attorneys, Joe Tacopina, has been taking the public approach, making the That's public one that did argument. the Good Morning America interview. Yeah, he was on Good Morning America yesterday. He was on Fox News last night. He's making the public pitch and laying out what their defense could be about why they shouldn't bring this case. Uh, let's take a listen to him on Hannity last night. I still hold out hope that justice will prevail. The crucial distinction is separating campaign funds from personal funds. Could you imagine, Sean, where we'd be tonight if if President Trump had used campaign funds to make this payment? Oh, my God. They'd be calling for his scalp. Instead, he did everything the right way. He did nothing wrong, as he has said repeatedly. Now, he's trying to make the case here that these were personal funds, that that was not campaign related, and that this was to save Trump from any embarrassment, you know, this alleged affair coming public. It, you know, it's, it's one of these things that could be a question ultimately for a jury if it gets there. Yeah. Joe Tacopina had been on this network and others uh, even before he mm -hmm. represented Trump talking about legal issues and also weighing in on the former president's. Um, legal issues. Listen, how many attorneys is a question? How many attorneys does Trump have? I, I don't think we well, can. There's a lot of investigations. There's a lot. <laughs> Let's talk about Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen went in yesterday to speak to the grand jury, and he said, "Listen, um, his only, what did he say? My only motivation is that Trump pays for his dirty deeds." What are you hearing? Yeah, I mean, so Cohen went in yesterday is the first time that he's been before the grand jury. And as we know, he's met with the DA's office over the past three years, some 20 something times. Uh, so this was the first time before the grand jury He's there for three hours. His lawyer said he'll be back on Wednesday to continue his testimony. He's a central figure here. He's the one that facilitated this payment, uh, you know, and this indicates that we're getting to the end here. A decision, a historic decision is likely to be made soon. It's still remarkable to me that we're seeing Michael Cohen go in and testify in this way, like given covering Michael Cohen when he was Trump's fixer. Um, but we will see what happens. I mean, it seems like an indictment is very likely. Kara Scannell, thank you for staying on top Kara, of it. See you. Okay, also this morning, we have some news coming out of Washington. Senator Mitch McConnell has now been released from the hospital. That came after he <clears throat> fell and suffered a concussion. We have the latest on his condition at this hour. So a health update now for Senate Mitch, Senator uh, Mitch McConnell out of the hospital this morning following a fall at a private dinner event last week. McConnell suffering a concussion and a rib fracture. His spokesperson released a statement saying McConnell's recovery is, quote, proceeding well, but he is not going home just yet. The Kentucky Republican is now undergoing physical therapy at an inpatient rehab facility. For more on that, we want to bring in Dr. Drew Kular. He is a physician and assistant professor of health policy at Weill Cornell Medicine. He's also a contributor to The New Yorker. Good to see you. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Discharged yesterday, right? Now in rehab. What does that tell you about his condition? Yeah, so, uh, you know, concussions are, are a very common condition, obviously. It's the most common form of traumatic brain injury in, in the United States. Most people tend to recover over the course of a few weeks. Particularly when people are older, they can need a little bit more time to recover. And so it's not uncommon for people to need additional physical therapy, go to an inpatient rehab facility like this. Um, and so this, this seems like part of the recovery process. Uh, but we need to kind of keep a close eye on, on how he's doing and make sure his symptoms don't change uh, and they continue to improve over time. 
Yeah, and we heard from his office. They said, you know, his concussion recovery is proceeding well. They said he was discharged yesterday, as we noted, and it's the advice of his physician that he's going to a period of physical therapy at an inpatient rehab facility. So he's not home yet. He's going to this rehab facility. Is that typical? Because, you know, obviously a big question on Capitol Hill is when he's getting back to work and you know what that process looks like. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, people will have a very different um, set of ways in which they recover over time. There's no single treatment for a concussion. And so the most important things are things like rest, getting high quality sleep, uh, returning gradually to stressful activities like work, um, and sometimes pain medications and physical therapy. So this is not um, uh, unusual for someone, particularly in their 80s, after they've had a concussion, to need a little bit more time to recover. Um, typically, people are at a rehab facility for a few days, potentially a few weeks. We'll just have to see uh, what it is in Senator McConnell's case. There's also shifting gears here dramatically, but really interesting news out of Pfizer as it pertains to, what, 40 million Americans with migraines? There's a nasal spray. Does it actually work? It does, as far as we can tell from the clinical trials. And so, as you said, migraines are an incredibly common condition, and they can be very debilitating for, uh, for millions of Americans across the country. So this is a new spray. It, it targets a molecule called CGRP, calcitonin gene-related peptide, that's thought to contribute to some of the inflammation in a uh, migraine. This is unique because it's a nasal spray, and that has a couple of advantages. And so nasal sprays tend to enter the bloodstream much more quickly than oral pills. People that have nausea or vomiting, they might have trouble taking oral pills or uh, trouble keeping them down. And this medication can also be used for people, uh, unlike some other migraine medications who have had strokes or heart attacks, and so it's considered a very safe medication, should be out uh, in July with a prescription from your doctor. But not the first nasal spray for... Not the, it's the first nasal spray of its kind. So there's a different nasal spray that's available. But as I said, that actually can um, have issues with people who have had heart attacks, strokes, or other mm. blood vessel con- conditions. Yeah. Welcome news for a lot of people, too. Absolutely. I mean, migraines can be so debilitating. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us here on Set This Morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, bank shares tumbling this morning following the collapse of two significant U.S. banks. President Biden urges calm. Regulators trying to contain the damage at the top of the hour will be joined by the former head of the FDIC, Sheila Baer. She was in charge during the 2008 financial crisis. What's worrying her most now? And just moments ago, a ground stop was issued at New York's LaGuardia Airport as a huge nor'easter brings heavy rain, dangerously strong winds. Our weather coverage continues straight ahead. Yikes. Good news if you're on a climb. Legendary Duke basketball former coach Mike Krzyzewski sounding off on his final four predictions. Coach K, as he is affectionately known, retired last year as the all-time winningest coach in men's Division I college basketball with five national championships. So I sat down with him and he told me who he thinks could win the tournament this year. Watch. Sitting courtside, that was difficult because I watch it as a coach, but then... You know, with all the social media, people are taking pictures of you or making judgments. Uh, well, he came here because of this, or he came here because of that, or look, he's not emotional, and whatever. I said, oh, all right, see you guys. <laughs> You've you know, had it. I've, Enough. I've, I've, I've had it. I'd rather sit in the box. Do you have final four picks? I actually think Duke has a great chance of... Going all the way? Yeah, I, I really do, because... There's such parity in college basketball right now. So who else? You I said think, UCLA's been under. I think UCLA's estimated. been under. Mick Cronin is. He's got some good stuff. You have to give Houston a, a chance of, of doing that. I think Edie is the best player for Purdue. 
but uh, Kansas has the pedigree. Some combination of, of those teams, and, and when all those teams are eliminated by the round of 16, <laughs> uh, which could happen, uh, I think there could be a big surprise here, too. I just don't know which one it is. We'll see if you even go. But we know if you go, where you'll be is in the box. I would only go if Duke is there. Okay, you'll only go if I Duke would, is there. Yeah, I'm a homer in that, in that case. Sorry, Caitlin. He forgot <laughs> to mention Alabama. First sorry, team, sorry. More with Coach K tomorrow. <laughs> CNN This Morning continues right now. Stocks of dozens of regional banks across the United States plunging to record lows. Americans can rest assured that our banking system is safe. This follows his administration's emergency response to the sudden failure of two banks. They gambled with the money and they lost. This was preventable, both through better regulation and, frankly, through better decision-making at the bank. We're tracking very severe weather on the east and west coasts. In the northeast, a significant nor'easter is taking shape. Flooded communities in northern California are bracing for yet another wave of heavy rainfall. Our worst nightmare came true. We had failure at the levee. Former president is making his first trip to Iowa the 2024 campaign and perhaps just days before a criminal indictment in the Stormy Daniels hush money case. Ron DeSanctis, did anyone ever hear of DeSanctis? DeSanctimonious, DeSanctis. Some brand new scene in polling that was released moments ago paints a picture of a divided party heading into the race for a GOP presidential nominee. For the first time since the invasion of Ukraine began, Russian officials could be facing war crimes charges. Reuters and The New York Times reporting the International Criminal Court is planning to open two cases and issue arrest warrants for a number of people. And something that Ukraine has been asking for for some time. In just moments, the Labor Department will release a key inflation report revealing just how much consumer prices rose last month. The biggest thing to watch for is what the Federal Reserve is going to do. Are they worried about the fragility of the banking system and being able to handle more rate hikes? And good morning, everyone. Welcome in to CNN This Morning. Banks across America struggling with the fallout from the largest bank failure since the 2008 financial crisis. Stocks of more than two dozen regional banks plummeted yesterday, even after President Biden took emergency action to ease panic. We're keeping a close eye on Wall Street this morning to see if they bounce back or keep sliding. Credit ratings from Moody's has now put these six banks on watch for potential downgrades. We saw long lines at Silicon Valley bank locations after President Biden guaranteed customers could get their money back following the bank collapse. All customers who had deposits in these banks can rest assured, I want to rest assured they'll be protected and they'll have access to their money as of today. That includes small businesses across the country that bank there and need to make payroll, pay their bills and stay open for business. We have an obligation with payroll. We have an electrical business and we have to meet payroll this afternoon. So that's why I'm here. Everything's insured, so we're not worried. I'm walking out with what I wanted. I'm going to go collect my chair and go home. So we need to tell you in about an hour, new inflation numbers set to be released. Federal Reserve now facing a delicate balancing act of hiking interest rates to fight inflation while preventing the collapse of more banks. Christine Romans knows all about this. She's our anchor and chief business correspondent. Hi, Christine. Hi, good morning. Can we talk about these, uh, the regional banks? They sure. seem to have been especially hit hard. 
What's the problem? What's going on here? Real bruising there yesterday. You look at First Republic, for example, down some 66%. Here's the issue. Some of these banks, like First Republic, have a lot of deposits that are so big they're uninsured. They're above that uninsured level. And there's a worry that depositors will get nervous and go to a bank, another bank, move their, their assets someplace else. You also have this issue with some banks, especially regional banks uh, and smaller banks, that have uh, put a lot of money into treasuries and mortgage-backed securities over the past few years. Higher interest rates has made them less valuable. So now they've got this disconnect on their books, unrealized losses on their books. Essentially. It's, it's, we have all been reporting, especially you, the Fed seemed to last week they were poised to raise yeah. interest rates. How does this affect Does this affect their calculation? What now? a balancing act. I mean, already it was really tricky here for the Fed. Now they've got to look at recession fears. They've got to look at these bank failures and financial stability and make sure that uh, anything they do doesn't cause more breakage in the financial system. You've got an inflation number coming out. Inflation still too high. Uh, and you've got a very strong job. Uh, jobs market that's been um, also spinning off inflation. Look, after the collapse of these two, three banks really in the last week, now you have a bigger chance of no rate hike at the next meeting. And look at this. Most people think it'll be about a quarter. This is a this is the Fed futures market, but uh, maybe only 25 basis points. So the Fed probably, the going thought is now, will not tighten as much as it would have a week ago. Yeah, they did not foresee this. No. So as I say, if it ain't one thing, it's another when it comes, especially now, to Absolutely. It just gets more and more interesting by the day. Thank you, Christine Romans. Welcome. Appreciate it. Poppy. All right, let's bring in former FDIC chair Sheila Bear. She's also the author of a children's book called Money Tales. It's all about financial literacy for children. Also, really related to this, uh, Chair Bear, is the fact that you were at the helm during the 2008 financial crisis, Washington Mutual, et cetera. So you have great experience in this. Thanks for your time this morning. Sure. Uh, do you expect more bank failures in the coming days? Well, it's not clear. I hope not. Uh, I think, you know, at this point, you're managing uh, more fear than bank insolvency. But if, uh, you know, if, if you have a deposit run and the, uh, the uh, bank can't raise cash fast enough to meet those deposit withdrawals, then the bank has to be closed. So hopefully that doesn't happen. I, I do hope people keep their head. I think most of these regional banks are probably just fine. It concerns me everybody's kind of getting tagged with the same problems that Silicon Valley Bank had. And right. that was an unusual situation. Very poor interest rate risk management and very heavy reliance on uh, on uh, sticky, uh, non-sticky, volatile, uninsured deposits. Wouldn't the new federal lending facility prevent against not being able to have a capital raise that was successful? It, 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 it should help, certainly, to the extent the problem is, is that they have these hold-to-maturity securities that have lost market value, right? If they can keep yeah. them to maturity, there's no loss. But if they have to sell them for a deposit run, uh, they will have a loss. So, yes, they're able to post these securities at, at, full, at par uh, with the Fed and get the full amount of, uh, of, their, of their par value uh, in an advance for a year. So that should help, yes. Why wouldn't the regulators know, or do the regulators know right now, if all of these other banks that are under pressure, like First Republic, uh, manage their interest rate risk the same way or yeah. mismanage that SVB did, wouldn't right. regulators know that? Well, um, you, <laughs> I hope so, yes. Banks, especially these larger banks, uh, regional banks, are, are have a fairly intensive examination, uh, continual examinations by bank supervisors. So. One would hope that. I'm sure they're doubling down now and very closely looking at, at all these banks, any bank with a large uh, percentage of HTM hold to maturity, the, the securities we're talking mm -hmm. about. And that includes, you know, there's a large bank that's got a lot, too. So this is just not a, a problem unique to uh, 
to uh, regional banks, but if they're hedging their interest rate risk, they should be fine. Or if they have, you know, yeah. an insured deposits or sticky institutional deposits, I mean, those loyal institutional yeah. customers, they should be fine. Uh, I, I do think fear is, is the big problem now, not so much banks having solvency trouble. I think the problem is fear. Unfounded fear? Um, well, you know, there's a, there's a lot of data out there about banks. I, no, I don't see anything from a solvency standpoint. I do not see any pervasive problems in our banking system. And I do think regulators need to be careful about how they communicate this mm -hmm. just by the fact that they made this very unusual and, and very extraordinary systemic risk determination does, I think, it's, it's, it's settling a little bit. Well, what's going on here? Is it, is it really that bad? Yeah. But if they're worried, I would say if they are worried about uninsured deposit runs and do something that protects them all, you know, just single out a couple banks is not going to help the others. It might make it worse for the others. You said this weekend to my colleague Matt Egan that the Fed should pause raising interest rates, meaning they should not raise rates at all right. next week. What happens right. if the Fed does ra yes. raise even 25 basis <clears throat> points next week? Right. Well, 25 basis points would probably be... Uh, uh, less bad. <laughs> I do think they should hit pause. Yes, I, I said that last December. Look, I'm I an inflation hawk. I've been arguing for, you know, normalizing interest rates since 2010. I have not liked this extended period of, of loose money, of cheap money. But, you know, if you look at where they started, they've raised rates by 6,000 percent. They started at 0.08. They're now at about four and a half. Mm -hmm. They need to hit pause and see what the impact of this will be on the financial system and the overall economy. So, yes, I do think that would be prudent. They can tighten later, but now they need to stop and if they okay. need to. But now they need to stop and assess. Um, there are many fingers being pointed, many directions, many of them at the 2018 yeah. rollback of part of Dodd-Frank, basically right. raising the bar for when a bank is considered systemically important. And a lot of these banks that are of concern now fall below that $250 billion in asset threshold. Elizabeth Warren said, no question that rollback is to blame for these collapses. Are you so sure about that? Well, I, I don't agree with some of those reforms I supported, some I did not. I think the problem here is, is that the smaller banks, uh, for the securities they hold that they say are available for sale. Now, everybody, and their quote-unquote hold to maturity mean you don't want to sell them until they mature. You don't have to mark them. You don't have to realize the market losses against your capital. But if they're available for sale, a different designation, the smaller banks can opt out of, of marking them. The larger banks have to mark them, deduct from capital. The small banks don't have to. So, yes, that may have been a factor here. But again, and, and, and I tremendously respect Elizabeth Warren, and I agree that needs to be fixed. But I don't think that implies there's some broad problem because okay. of deregulation with regional banks. I just don't see that, no. Okay, final question. You're a Republican, and we're hearing from a number of Republicans, including Ron DeSantis, um, Josh Hawley, who are pointing to the diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives at uh, Silicon Valley Bank or their ESG, I see you roll your eyes there, and they're saying they were focused on that, and DeSantis says they were not focused on the, quote, core mission of the bank. Any credence? Yeah. So I guess, you know, both sides, let's not politicize this and have agendas on regulation or ESG or whatever. SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, did a really poor job of managing its interest rate risk. It, it, was, it, was, it was mismanaged and, and it had an unusual deposit base. Those are things that make it a bit idiosyncratic in terms of the larger system. So that's not to say other banks may have some issues. Again, I think fear and driving uninsured deposit withdrawals is a big problem we have now. But let's not politicize this. You know, that just that's just really not helpful. Let's let's focus on what the real problems are.
sounds like you don't think that's it at all, right? No, no, I okay. don't think that's it, no. This, I, I, no, that's the first time I've heard of that, no. Okay, well, they're talking a lot about it. Uh, Sheila Bear, former FDIC chair, thank you yeah. very much. <clears throat> Sure, happy to be here. Thank you. Great perspective there on such a key issue here. Also, this morning we're tracking something else going on across the country, a huge nor'easter that is now packing heavy rain, snow, dangerously strong winds as it is ramping up across New England and New York. In Massachusetts, winter storm watches are already in effect as snow totals might reach two feet with wind gusts already up to 45 miles per hour. More than 94,000 people are without power already throughout the Northeast this morning. CNN's Derek Van Dam is live in Massachusetts tracking all of this. Derek, last time we checked in with you, it looked a lot more like rain. Now clearly uh, the snow is coming down there this morning. What are you seeing on the ground? Yeah, this is what I signed up for, Caitlin. Big, fat snowflakes, a true nor'easter starting to set in here in Worcester, Massachusetts. What you're looking at behind me is a salt barn. We have seen this dump truck filling literally trucks and trucks full of salt and brine ready to treat the roads. I have my cameraman pan around to uh, our vehicle here and you can see how the snow is starting to accumulate. And the reason I show that is because this is the hairline precision of forecasting these nor'easters. It is a matter of miles. You go further towards Boston and to the east, it is raining heavily. We'll take you to LaGuardia, where they currently have a ground stop at the moment because of the rain now starting to transition to snow. But here in Worcester, it is all snow, and I don't see it changing back to rain anytime soon because we are on the cold side of this storm now. Elevation here, 500 feet. The real concerns that I've got, bring up the radar, and you'll be able to see that distinctive rain snow line. Snow in New Bedford, snow in Boston, snow in Hartford, but Worcester uh, northward into the Berkshires as well as the Catskills. This is where we're anticipating the one to two feet, but this is a very heavy wet snow. You can just see by the nature of the size of these snowflakes. And so when this piles up on power lines and the various trees around the area, you combine that with 50 mile per hour wind gusts and that is going to start bringing down the electricity. Uh, we already have those numbers rapidly rising at 90,000 across New York states and other various states across New England. And we expect that number to continue to grow as this nor'easter grips New all England. Right. We'll have reports all morning from this area. And we Caitlin. will continue to check in with you. Derek Van Dam, stay warm. We'll see you soon. Yeah. A notable shift from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis on a key foreign policy issue. We're talking about Ukraine here, why this puts him closer to former President Trump. Also just releasing this morning, brand new polling on what Republican voters want as we head to 2024. We'll tell you what that number, those numbers say ahead. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is now providing the clearest indication yet of where he stands on a major foreign policy issue. DeSantis telling Fox News' Tucker Carlson that he disagrees where, with where most in his party are on Ukraine, putting it this way, saying, quote, while the U.S. has many vital national interests, securing our borders, addressing the crisis of readiness with our military, achieving energy security and independence, and checking the economic, cultural, and military power of the Chinese Communist Party, Becoming further entangled in a territorial dispute between Ukraine and Russia is not one of them. This thinking now aligns DeSantis with the stance of one of his strongest potential rivals, former President Trump. Of course, DeSantis has not actually announced he's running yet. But put that in context with what DeSantis said back in 2015. This was after Russia illegally annexed Crimea. DeSantis was then a congressman 
And this is what he said at the time. We in the Congress have been urging the president, referring to President Obama, to provide arms to Ukraine. They want to fight their good fight. They're not asking us to fight it for them. And the president has steadfastly refused. I think that's a mistake. And Governor Ron DeSantis, former President Trump's most frequent target from the campaign trail in Iowa. So CNN's Kristen Holmes live now in Davenport this morning with more on this. Kristen, good morning to you. How did Trump's first Iowa stop go? Full of jokes, I'm sure. Good morning, Don. Well, you know, this was really the first time we heard him go after DeSantis by name in a speech since he announced his candidacy for president. And usually he saves that for his social media page or for these one-on-one interviews. And I will say that while it was a very enthusiastic night, the response to those criticisms of the Florida governor was a little bit lukewarm. It was clear from people that we talked to that while they like Trump and maybe they like Trump better, they still like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. But one thing was very clear in the last two days we spent here. We talked to people, uh, we saw the crowd last night. It was a packed house for Donald Trump. And of course, those CNN poll numbers, Donald Trump is still a huge force in the Republican Party. Former President Donald Trump taking aim at Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in Iowa. Ron DeSantis. Did anyone ever hear of DeSantis? DeSantis. During his first trip to the crucial early state since announcing his third White House bid. Ron was a disciple of Paul Ryan who is a rhino loser who currently is destroying Fox and would constantly vote against entitlements. At this early stage, DeSantis is widely seen as the former president's chief rival for the GOP nomination. Ron DeSantis strongly opposed ethanol. Do you know that? And we don't even know if he's running, but I might as well tell you. If he's not running, I'll say he was fine on ethanol. Don't worry about it. The Florida governor has yet to announce a presidential run. Earlier in the evening, Trump setting his sights on another potential 2024 hopeful, his former running mate, while seeking to deflect blame for the violent attack on the Capitol on January 6th, telling The Washington Post that Mike Pence was at least in part to blame for the events that day, saying, quote, had he sent the votes back to the legislatures, they wouldn't have had a problem with January 6th. So in many ways, you can blame him for January 6th. Trump's comments in response to the former vice president delivering his sharpest rebuke yet of his former boss. In a private speech during an annual dinner in Washington, Pence telling attendees, quote, I know that history will hold Donald Trump accountable for January 6th. Trump becoming the latest 2024 Republican hopeful to visit Iowa. The agricultural industry should be treated just like the manufacturing industry. We said we are going to go on offense. I'm going to find issues. As the 2024 GOP field begins to take shape. A new CNN poll showing that the former president still remains a leading figure in the party. 40% of Republicans and Republican-leaning independents said they would most likely back Trump for the GOP nomination when given a list of nine potential candidates, compared to the 36% who chose Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, the only two to reach double digits, with former Vice President Pence and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley at 6% each. 
And Don, of course, it is important to note that this is still very early. Obviously, the former vice president, as well as the Florida governor, have not even announced that they are going to be running for president, even though, of course, that is anticipated. But this is expected to be a very crowded GOP field, and it's expected to be a very busy next year and a half. Don? Right on that, Kristen. And here, yet, here we are covering them. Thank you so much. I wonder if that should, I wonder if we should make, you know, unless they <laughs> declare, should we not talk about them as if they are running? You know what I'm saying? Well, Until you declare. 36% then, of people in that poll want it. But we could do that. We could have done that, you know, last year or the year before. That kind of reminds me of what Trump said last night. He was saying that DeSantis is bad on ethanol. Yeah. He said, but unless, unless he, doesn't he, run for pres- <laughs> he doesn't run for president, I'll say he's good he's on good ethanol. He's good on ethanol. Okay, anyway, yeah. Estad Herndon is here. <laughs> We've got a fourth guest to the table. Hi, <laughs> Estad. Um, and, and he is CNN political analyst and national politics reporter for the New York <laughs> Times as well. Good morning to you. Good morning. I also loved that, that Trump line on DeSantis, the, just showing how transactional his politics really is. Yeah. <laughs> so we, I said, what are you hot on? I mean, I think that this presidential race is really turning up to another level. Over the weekend, we had that back and forth between uh, former President Trump and Mike Pence, which is not new, those lines of attack. Uh, uh, President Trump has been blaming Mike Pence wrongly for the attacks on January 6th for years. He was doing that on that day publicly. He's been doing it privately. But we've now seen Vice President Pence ramp up his kind of positioning as he gets closer to the presidential race. He took out a a kind of pro-Ukraine position, which obviously uh, cuts against some of the Republican electorate. And now at that gridiron dinner, a place in Washington, D.C., where there was going to be a lot of media folks there, he ramped up those attacks against Donald Trump and democracy. I think this is someone on Vice President Pence's side who may have been trying to pick that fight with Donald Trump, trying to draw him into the race in a way of growing his own lane, growing his own position as he heads into 2024. The race is definitely turning up. It certainly is. And I think part of that with the the Pence calculus of why he did that is... Now other Republicans are going to get asked about For sure. their view of January 6th and if Trump will be held accountable that day. Trump's response, I want to go back to that for a moment because I don't think we've focused on it enough here this morning, which is he is blaming Mike Pence, saying that the actions he did not take that day is yeah. why there was January 6th. That's what he told reporters on the plane to Iowa yesterday. That's the same argument that John Eastman, the attorney who was in and out of the Oval Office, made to Pence's counsel while Pence was still under siege at the Capitol that day as the riot was still underway, saying... This is your boss's fault yep. because he didn't do what we wanted him to do. That's why we're seeing this level of violence. Exactly. From from that day all until now, despite all of the evidence that's come out, despite the facts, Donald Trump and those around him, the kind of hardened Trump uh, base has not changed their position here. They still blame Mike Pence for those actions and not sending the certification back to the state legislatures, something we know Pence did not have the authority to be able to pull off on that day. And so when I was just at CPAC, which is, again, a representation of the hardened kind of collective Trump base, this is still the line of attack on Pence. They are defending the rioters at January 6th. I actually saw folks in shirts that were really uh, uh, supporting those people, making sure they went up to people who talked on the stage, making sure they pulled Marjorie Taylor Greene over to the side, making sure that that issue stayed in the consciousness of some of those people. And I think that there was an interesting split screen at CPAC, actually, which speaks to this point. 
from the stage, you did not really hear election denial in January 6th come, that up, come up that much. But among the people there, it is still a driving topic. And that's why you see Donald Trump still reflecting that language against Mike Pence. Is it, is it hypocritical of Mike Pence to now make these statements oh, that absolutely. he made at Gridiron and then refuse every single subpoena, refuse to talk to the January 6th committee, refuse to testify? Yeah. So it's hypocritical. But everyone is, you know, but not everyone. A lot of people are lauding him, but they're saying, eh, Mike Pence, not so fast. They're also talking about what they call his homophobia, yeah. right? Not so funny at the Gridiron Dinner. This is what he said about uh, the Pete Buttigieg, uh, the um, infrastructure that uh, the secretary here says. Um, when Pete's two children were born, he took two months maternity leave, whereupon thousands of travelers were stranded in airports. The air traffic system shut down. Airplanes nearly collided in midair. I mean, Pete Buttigieg is the only person in human, in human history to have a child, and all of the rest of us get postpartum depression. He said yeah. that on Saturday. Of course, the White House speaking out, you can put up the response basically saying, you know, he should apologize and that he used, he treated women suffering from postpartum <laughs> depression as a punchline, not to mention the homophobia of that joke. What do yeah. you make of that? Yeah, I mean, this was something that also came out of that dinner. We know the gridiron someplace where politicians try to, you know, make some jokes, barb on the other side. This one didn't land. We saw the White House and specifically uh, Chatsam Buttigieg really come out and say that they're looking for an apology from Mike Pence. But I think that this actually speaks to a kind of overall uh, 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 tricky line that Mike Pence is walking. To your point, he is trying to speak more out against Donald Trump uh, and, and his and, and January 6th. But at the same time, there is the block of those subpoenas. There is a kind of endless cycle of questions that are now going to come. If Donald Trump is responsible for January 6th, that opens up hold some responsibility. That opens up a whole set of questions now that Mike Pence should be uh, open to answering. And so this is actually the difficulty, I think, in Repu running in a Republican primary and you kind of do this uh, attacks against Donald Trump because Mike Pence does not want to turn himself into a Liz Cheney-like figure. He does not want to turn himself into someone who does not have credibility or standing among the Republican primary. He wants to stake out a kind of middle-of-the-road lane, and that's difficult to do because, to your point, the race to Donald uh, the, the criticism of Donald Trump is often a race to the bottom because there are so many things you can ask someone about. You can ask them about. Let me speak All right, Estad, thank you thank very you. much. Thanks, Estad. This morning, China is responding to a new deal between the U.S. and the U.K. and Australia, why they say it could cause an arms race. In what is a clear challenge to China, President Biden, there you can see him yesterday, announcing a major new plan to supply Australia with nuclear-powered submarines and what is probably his administration's most aggressive move yet to, China, to counter China's growing influence in the region. There's President Biden joining his British and Australian counterparts at a naval base in California, announcing plans for Australia to get its own nuclear-powered submarines early next decade. As we stand at the inflection point in history where the hard work of enhancing deterrence and promoting stability is going to affect the prospect of peace for decades to come, the United States can ask for no better partners in the Indo-Pacific where so much of our shared future will be written. This morning, China says the deal goes down what they call, quote, a dangerous road and will only stimulate an arms race, according to the Chinese. CNN's Natasha Bertrand joins us now. Obviously, that's a very strong response from China. We're not surprised because this is such a big move from, from President Biden. 
That's right, Caitlin. And look, China's not mincing words this morning. They are saying that they believe this is going to stimulate an arms race and that this represents a new, quote, Cold War mentality by the U.S., U.K., and Australia. But look, U.S. officials did expect this because this is a deal between the U.S., U.K., and Australia known as AUKUS that is essentially aimed at countering Chinese naval dominance in the Indo-Pacific. It will see uh, the U.S. provide Australia with three nuclear-powered submarines by the year 2033 and also use British and American technology to create their own submarines uh, by the 2040s. So China clearly not happy about this because it also is aimed at deterring a potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Now, U.S. officials, of course, they expected this reaction from China. There have been a number of irritants recently in the U.S.-China relationship from that spy balloon that was shot down over the United States, of course, to warnings by the United States that China is potentially thinking about arming Russia for its war in Ukraine. Also, the U.S. and China have not spoken in many months. The lines of communication, particularly between the military leadership between the two countries has essentially been silent. And so the U.S. has been trying to reopen those lines of communication, despite, of course, these efforts to counter that naval dominance of China in the Indo-Pacific. And what we're hearing is that the White House remains pretty optimistic that that communication will be reopened now that China's National uh, Congress has essentially closed, giving Xi Jinping, the president of China, more room uh, to speak to the United States. And they're hoping that President Biden and she will have a conversation sometime in the near future, Caitlin. Yeah, we'll see what that looks like. And of course, coming as China has brokered that deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia, there's so much to talk about. Natasha Bertrand, thank you. This morning, dozens of Ukrainian troops are wrapping up their training in Spain on the Leopard 2 tanks Western allies agreed to send to help Ukraine in its fight. This is part of a coordinated effort with Spain, Germany, Norway, Poland, Portugal and the Netherlands to supply Kyiv with around 80 Leopard 2 vehicles. Our next guest is a U.S. Army veteran who has been fighting alongside Ukrainians since the beginning and sharing his experience with us from the ground. We're happy to join Miro Popovich or have him join us here. Uh, he is back in the U.S. for the first time since the start of the war. Miro, thank you. Hi. We appreciate you joining us. Good thank morning you. to you. Uh, so we're happy to see that you're safe. You're heading back to Ukraine tomorrow. Your assessment yes. of where you think this war is one year out. And, I mean, you've been, you know, fighting yeah. for a year. Well, you know, uh, since day one, I think the whole world was giving us, what, two, three days. Mm -hmm. And here we are, uh, one year later, and uh, we are fighting back. And uh, um, our armed forces have liberated uh, much of a territory. I know it's a still long way to go, but, uh, you know, we're on the right track. Of course, obviously, with the support from Europe and United States and the whole world that uh, cherishes the freedom and the human rights, uh, with all that help, uh, we are on the right track to end this war as soon as possible. You've said you're surprised that it's still going on even this long. You know, we hit the one-year mark. We talked about what that meant. What is it like being on the ground there? You, given you've been someone who's been there, you're going back, as Don said. What is it like there? Uh, well, you know what? Um, I, I, I can say it's horrible, and it'll be the right statement. But, uh, you know, uh, we as humans, we get used to anything and uh, probably uh, one year later, I, I get used to seeing horrible and tremendous things or being under fire. You get used to this, but it's not normal, obviously. Uh, but uh, it is, I tell you this, I wanna, uh, it is amazing to see how united uh, Ukrainians are and the whole world around us. And uh, to see um, 
from any, I've been to Kharkiv, Kherson, Mykolaiv, Kyiv, uh, all these cities and everywhere you see people united. Uh, it's, it's amazing. Um, yeah. Why did you come back? Uh, to United States? Yeah. Man, I have to file my taxes. I'm a United <laughs> States, I'm a, I'm a United States citizen. Yeah. I haven't filed my taxes in 21 and uh, I have to file for 22 and my driver's license was expiring. My U.S. passport was expiring because it's been a long time. Yeah. So I had to come here and, um, you know, do those little things. And, um, and uh, the other thing is uh, Andrei Hlivniuk from Boombox, you know, uh, the Pink Floyd guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the guy who sang with Pink Floyd. Uh, we are in the same team. So uh, he came here with a tour with his band Boombox to raise money for Ukraine uh, humanitarian and military aid. So I'm here sort of helping him out as well. One big thing we've been talking about this morning is also the politics here at home and support for Ukraine. Because we've heard Biden and the admin talk about supporting Ukraine as long as it takes. But Ron DeSantis is someone who is expected to enter the Republican race. Mm. He is polling the closest to Trump of anyone else. And he said, you know, last night he doesn't think the U.S. should be involved in in what he called a territorial dispute between Ukraine and Russia. Are you worried about the future of politics here and how that affects support for Ukraine? Uh, uh, What's this guy's name? Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis. Of Florida. Florida. Yeah, yeah. I heard his name. Yes. Well, I want to let him know that this is not a territorial dispute. Uh, Russia uh, is uh, has invaded Ukraine to destroy, demolish, rape, kill. And uh, it's, uh, it's not a territorial dispute. So hopefully this guy doesn't win. But, um, but what was the question again? Well, just the concern about, about what the support could look like and the U.S. commitment and oh, yeah. broader uh, commitment to Ukraine. Of course, um, you know, the United States supports Ukraine uh, very much. And uh, I am concerned if the support will stop it'll be harder for us because uh, we already paid the uh, highest price, the ultimate price. I mean, tens of thousands people died. And um, I've seen uh, cities demolished. Uh, for example, for instance, city of Makivka, where 10,000 people live there, is demolished 100%. There, there's no more, there's, there's no more, the city doesn't exist anymore. So this is not a territorial dispute. This is life or death. So as someone said, if uh, Russia uh, stops shooting, there'll be no war. If Ukraine stops shooting, there'll be no Ukraine. So um, that's exactly what's, what's happening. Before you go, can, we, can you tell us about your shirt? Because oh, the I short, noticed it in the commercial yes. break. Uh, this is a St. Javelin shirt. Uh, perhaps it's St. Javelin. Uh, I think it's a St. Mary that's holding a javelin <laughs> and uh, they call it Saint, the protector of Ukraine. Which obviously have been critical for Ukraine. Yes. Miro. Be safe, okay? Thank you. We thank you for joining us. Yeah. Thank you very thank much. Thank you for coming before you go back. Okay, also this morning, what we are tracking... Oh, Poppy, uh, go ahead. <laughs> In 2018, bipart- a bipartisan vote, uh, lawmakers ease regulations for some banks. Now lawmakers are trying to make sense of Silicon Valley Bank's collapse. Would stricter regulations have prevented that? We're going to be joined by Alabama Senator Doug Jones about his vote five years ago on that, what he thinks now. That's next on CNN This Morning. 
States. This is the second largest bank failure in U.S. history since the collapse of Washington Mutual in 2008. It's 2008 all over again, baby. <laughs> Banks are collapsing, flip phones are back, and Hillary Clinton's got the nomination locked up. <laughs> Well, President Biden is trying to reassure people that their money is safe following the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. All steps are being taken to help depositors. Many are looking ahead, fearing other smaller banks could soon face the same fate. Let's hope not. So joining us now, Doug Jones, former U.S. senator from Alabama, the great state of Alabama, and counsel at Arnt Fox Schiff, which uh, represents banks and savings and loan institutions, among other types of clients. So perfectly perched to answer questions regarding this and other issues. Thank you. Good morning to you. Morning, Don. First up, I have to ask you, 2008, you were one of 17, 2018, excuse me. He just said 2008. I got 2008 on my brain. In 2018, you were one of 17 Democrats to vote with Republicans to ease regulations on smaller banks. Should Silicon Valley banks have been under the same rules as the big banks? I mean, banks, if those rules were not rolled back, would that have protected SVB or Signature Bank from failing? You know, Don, I think it remains to be seen uh, right now. I mean, we're in this thing in the first, you know, three or four days here. And I think the president said it best yesterday in that we've got to do a full accounting. I think the administration, Treasury, FDIC, the Fed, the OCC, uh, and the banking committees uh, in both the House and Senate need to really figure out what's going on about this. I think the 2018 bill was a good bill. Uh, it eased some regulations, but most of Dodd-Frank is still there. Uh, but like everything else, nothing is sacred in that bill, and they need to look and see exactly what happened and try to react accordingly. If there needs to be changes, they need to make some changes. So you don't regret supporting the bill? You don't feel responsible for any of this? No, I don't feel responsible for this. You know, Don, legislation is 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 there for uh, trying to deal with the circumstances that have existed uh, in in the past and trying to do your best to look forward. There are thousands of banks in this country that I think are fine. I think our banking system, every economist that I've been seeing says our banking system is strong. There's liquidity in the market and in the in these banks. So I don't think that that is a, a systemic problem across the the board here. But again, that, that legislation, like so many other pieces of legislation that get passed in the moment, needs to be reviewed. Circumstances okay, have changed, including how people can uh, remove their money. Okay, so then now, would you not support the bill now? I, I, again, Don, I don't know what the call all the causes. We have seen this. I don't think you can simply throw the baby out with the bathwater right now and look at one piece of legislation five years ago that caused this. Regulators are still out there. The bank has certain responsibilities. Let's get the cause of this and see, and then we'll try okay. to adjust accordingly. I, Hopefully, Congress can get together. Okay. So I get what you're saying. Um, and I, you know, I could press you more on this, but I want to move on and I have other business that we need to tend to. So the former Vice President Mike Pence over the weekend had some really harsh words for his former boss, saying that history will hold Donald Trump accountable for his actions inciting the January 6th insurrection. Why would he criticize Trump like this now when he is fighting every investigation to um, talk about and to try to figure out to get to the bottom of what happened on January 6th? 
You know, Donnie, I think he's making a purely political calculation at this point, um, purely political. You've not seen that kind of, of language coming out of the former vice president uh, since this time. His, his life, his family's lives were on the line on January 6th, and you did not see him kind of denounce the uh, former president in such a very difficult, uh, harsh way. But I think it's a purely political calculation as people are gearing up toward the 2024 run. And as people are seeing the vulnerabilities of Donald Trump as a candidate, they're just kind of jumping on this a little bit. And I think he is trying to define a lane for himself and quite frankly, set a standard uh, for other candidates. It's going to be interesting to see how Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley and Chris Christie and Glenn Youngkin or whoever else is going to run in that primary react. And if they're going to have the same kind of language, because they're still going to be fighting for that MAGA vote. Yeah, and some of whom have supported election uh, deniers as well. So I want to talk about now what the FBI Absolutely. is saying, a big issue. So the FBI, according to the latest data, uh, hate crimes increased in 2021 to unprecedented levels. There were more than 9,000 reported incidents, uh, which is an 11.6% increase from 2020. That is not good for the country. What do you make of those numbers? I, you know, Don, I, I'm going to be very candid about this. I am not surprised. I see the rhetoric of so many uh, po politicians, particularly on the far right, uh, the hateful rhetoric that comes out, the kind of bullying rhetoric, and it gives rise to that. You know, I grew up in an era, era of Jim Crow. We've had so much violence in the South in the past because of the rhetoric of governors and, and politicians across the area. And there is a direct correlation. I've been saying that for many, many years. There is a direct correlation sometimes between the rhetoric of our public officials uh, and the rise of hate crimes. They feel like they can get away with it. And we're seeing that across the country. And it's frightening. Uh, I think people need to dial this back and understand that their words have consequences. And they can still make their political points without having to do that so in a way that is going to engender violence. And that, that, that happens. I think people out there see and hear things differently. And sometimes they hear, a, hear uh, politicians give them a green light to do things that are absolutely uh, violent and against the law. And we've seen that rising over the last four or five years, particularly with Donald Trump as president of the United States. That kind of rhetoric went to a crescendo level. Yeah. The reason I asked you that is because you prosecuted uh, a case more than 20 years ago, which was for the bombing uh, at a black church in Birmingham, Alabama, that killed four little girls in 1963. So you know right. a lot about hate crimes. Doug Jones. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Okay, Don. Thank you. Meanwhile, the Northeast is bracing for heavy snow and dangerous winds. We're going to take you live to Massachusetts as officials are responding to the first nor'easter of the season. And they graduated college. They have careers. They make their own money, but they are moving back in with their parents. We'll talk about this growing trend ahead. But have you seen the rent prices out there? It's something that I used to be almost like embarrassed or ashamed of, um, but not anymore. Living by yourself is almost impossible. They left for college, then they came right back home. There is a growing number of young folks who have moved back in, back in with their parents after graduation, even though they've started their careers or making their own money. Our Gabe Cohen reports. Yeah, it feels, feels like home. Grace Lemire shows us her Massachusetts home. 
So this is my childhood bedroom. Well, her parents' home. This is my mom's office. <laughs> the 24-year-old moved back after college and hasn't left, even though she's now making close to six figures running her own content marketing business. I mean, it's been huge. I've been able to completely save an emergency fund. I have been able to put a lot of money onto my student loans. I have a bigger down payment for a future home. Those are things that are important to me and make living at home make more sense for me. She posts about it on TikTok. But have you seen the rent prices out there? And she's not alone. Living by yourself is almost impossible. Millions of young adults moved home during the pandemic and many haven't left. It's something that I used to be almost like embarrassed or ashamed of, um, but not anymore. As of last summer, 50% of adults 18 to 29 years old were living with their parents, according to Pew, down just slightly from 52% at the peak of the pandemic, the most since the Great Depression. I would say most of my friends are actually living at home with their parents. Housing costs are a key reason. The average rent nationwide, nearly $2,000, is 26% higher than at the start of COVID and only rising amid this high inflation. I can't be financially stable if I want to go out and live on my own. 23-year-old Christine Brunick has lived with her parents in a Minnesota suburb since finishing college. Renting her own place, she says, could cost half her marketing salary. I feel kind of like in a stagnant position. What's your plan as of now? I'm hoping to move out in August, but again, that depends if I find roommates. Then there's student loan debt. The goal is to just uh, clear that out as quickly as I can. 26-year-old John Williams, a pharmacist in Michigan, moved into his parents' basement after finishing grad school with $180,000 of student debt, he says. It has been a very you know, minimalist lifestyle. I saved over 80% of my net income. When do you think you'll be able to clear your student debt? Probably late fall. I'm about three quarters of the way through it right now. Are you getting antsy? Um, I am getting slightly antsy. Um, I do feel like 2023 would probably be a good year for me to move out. Many Americans don't like this trend. 36% say that more young adults living with parents is bad for society, while 16% say it's good, according to Pew Research. I've been called a fraud and a freeloader. Grace's mom had a different take. If she's in a better position, then you know, that gives us peace of mind. And, and when we get older, if we need help, she'll be in a better position to help us, right? And if you go on social media on TikTok, you'll also find plenty of young people posting about how they can't or they won't live with their parents for any number of reasons. But Poppy, there was also a new study that was published in, in England uh, that found mental health actually improved for young adults when they moved home as they were escaping a poor yeah. living conditions, which as we're seeing in many cases caused by uh, inflation, housing costs, all of these really, really big costs yeah. right now. Isolation, loneliness. What do you do, right? When you're feeling down, you call mom. Or dad. Mom dad yeah. um, Gabe, that was great. Thank you. CNN This Morning continues right now. All customers who had deposits in these banks can rest assured. I want to rest assured they'll be protected and they'll have access to their money. We have an obligation with payroll. We have an electrical business, and we have to meet payroll this afternoon, so that's why I'm here. Everything's insured, so we're not worried. I'm walking out with what I wanted. I'm going to go collect my chair and go home. Wow. Yeah, yeah wow, it's right? Like a bank. It's like a, it's, it's a full-on bank run. These are old-school bank runs. I know. Let's not scare people.
No, but I'm saying what we're seeing. Yes, yes. at a few banks, yeah. and let's hope it's not more. Uh, good morning, everyone. It is the top of the hour. We're glad you're with us. Customers getting their money back after the stunning collapse of Silicon Valley Bank concern is now growing, though, as Don was indicating, for other regional smaller banks across the nation. Their stocks are tanking. How much danger are they really in? Investment banker, former Treasury official Roger Altman is here to join us and weigh in. And a massive winter storm slamming the Northeast as we speak right now with powerful winds and up to two feet of snow. We're going to take you live inside the storm. Plus, a Texas judge is under the microscope for not wanting to tell the public about a very high stakes abortion rights hearing. We have more on that ahead, but we're going to begin this morning with the growing concern for America's banks. We are watching the fallout spread from the biggest bank failure since the 2008 financial crisis. Stocks of more than two dozen regional banks plummeted yesterday, even after President Biden came out and took emergency action to ease the panic. We are closely watching Wall Street this morning to see if they can rebound. The credit ratings firm Moody's has now said these six banks that you see here on the screen are on watch for potential downgrades, citing, quote, extremely volatile funding conditions. Meanwhile, the Biden administration has been scrambling to contain the situation and prevent other banks from collapsing. Yesterday, Silicon Valley Bank customers, as you can see here, lined up to get their money back after President Biden guaranteed that their deposits following that bank's failure. Joining us now for perspective on this is Roger Altman, who served as the deputy treasury secretary in the Clinton administration and is also the founder and chairman of Evercore, which is an investment banking advisory firm. So the perfect person to be here today. And good morning. I want to get your reaction, though, first to some breaking news that we're getting. Senator Elizabeth Warren is now saying that she believes the Fed chair, Jay Powell, should recuse himself from their internal review of the regulation and supervision of SVB. She argues that uh, for it to have any credibility, he must publicly and immediately recuse himself because he uh, played a role in this, she says, by boosting their profits, by loading up on risk, directly contributing to these banks' failures. Do you agree with that? Senator Warren has made some good points over the past 24 hours, including her uh, her main one, uh, with which I agree, which is that the, the rollback of Dodd-Frank regulations, which President Trump and the Congress did uh, four years ago, was a mistake and contributed uh, to this period of very serious instability. I don't think Chairman Powell uh, is, is personally responsible for any of this, so I don't think he should be forced to recuse himself. But the main point that she has been making, which is a different one than you just cited, uh, I do agree with her, with her on. Uh, we need tighter regulation, and the decision four years ago by the president and the Congress to lighten up on it and to roll back Dodd-Frank was a big mistake and had a lot to do with this. Yeah, that was that rollback in 2018. I should know, I spoke with Gary Cohn. He right. said he doesn't believe that that was part of this, but do you think this means there will be more regulation going forward? What should that look like? Well, there's a very specific reason why it was part of this. And that's the following. Uh, Dodd-Frank, uh, uh, which was signed, I believe, in 2011, uh, stipulated that banks with $50 billion in assets or more would be uh, deemed to be systemically important, unquote, and therefore would be subject to the tightest uh, capital ratios, liquidity ratios, leverage ratios, and to the regular stress tests, which the largest banks would be subject to. The bill 
uh, which was passed in 2018, which rolled this back, raised that threshold to 250 billion. Only banks with 250 billion or more in assets, and that's just a handful in this country, would be subject to the tightest controls. Silicon Valley Bank, uh, therefore, was not uh, seen by the regulators as, quote, systemically important, and therefore was not subject to the most conservative regulation. And, and obviously, in retrospect, it was systemically important. That's why the Treasury and the Fed and the FDIC spent four or five frantic days trying to rescue it because it's, it was threatening the entire financial system. So obviously, it was systemically important. And the effects of, two, of 2018 law, which uh, in effect meant that it wasn't, were, were a mistake, a huge mistake, and contributed directly to this. Yeah, and we know Barney Frank w- was one of those who was pushing to ease those regulations. Obviously, he joined Signature Bank, which is, which is part of all of this. I want to get your perspective, though, because one thing that I'm hearing from the Treasury Department is that this is not a bailout in their view. But for regular people, it kind of looks like one. What do you think? Well, the term bailout is a, obviously a loaded one, and it's in the eye of the beholder. You know, it's, it's like one, person's, one person sees something and see, thinks it's a catastrophe. Another person sees the same thing and thinks it's a small accident. Um, but the main point here is that the rescues of 2008 and 2009, which we all remember so vividly, became ferociously unpopular. I mean, one of the most unpopular things that the federal government has done in 50 or 100 years. Many people think they led to, uh, you know, the growth of the Tea Party and the, the, uh, the growth of the MAGA movement and so forth. Um, and therefore, the administration today doesn't want to get within 100 miles of that term bailout. Now, uh, what, the reg- what the authorities did over the weekend was absolutely profound. They guaranteed the deposits, all of them, at Silicon Valley Bank. And what that really means, uh, and they won't say this, and I'll come back to that, what that really means is that they have guaranteed the entire deposit base of the U.S. financial system, the entire deposit base. Why? Because you can't guarantee all the deposits at Silicon Valley Bank, and then the next day say to depositors, say, at First Republic, sorry, yours aren't guaranteed. Of course they are. And so this is a breathtaking step, uh, which effectively nationalizes or federalizes the deposit base of the U.S. financial system. Now, uh, you can call it a bailout, you can call it something else, but it's, it's really absolutely profound. Now, the authorities, including the White House, are not gonna say that because what I just said of course, implies that they've just nationalized the banking system. And technically speaking, they haven't. But in a broad sense, they're verging on that. By the way, uh, the the shareholders in Silicon Valley Bank obviously lost all their money. And therefore, if you're a shareholder at First Republic or some of the other banks that you showed on your screen a few minutes ago, you're concerned because you saw that in Silicon Valley Bank, the shareholders were wiped out. But the depositors at those institutions have nothing to worry about because they've just been guaranteed. That is a, a, a remarkable statement here. You say that you believe the, the U.S. banking system has been nationalized because of this. Well, I, no, I, I didn't say it has been nationalized. 
I said they're verging on that because they've guaranteed the entire deposit base. Usually the term nationalization means that the government takes over the institution and runs it and the government owns it. That would be the type of nationalization you've seen in many other countries around the world. Obviously, that did not happen here. But when you guarantee the entire deposit base, uh, you have put the, the federal government and the taxpayer in a much different place in terms of protection than we were in a week ago. Yeah, it does fundamentally change those aspects of it. Roger Altman, great perspective. Thank you for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. That was really fascinating. And he's right. It was breathtaking what authorities did. All right. Meantime, to the wicked weather out east, more than 20 million Americans are under winter weather alerts across New England and New York. They're bracing for the first nor'easter of the season. A ground stop has been issued at LaGuardia Airport right here in New York. Ahead of this storm, you've got heavy rain, snow up to 45 mile an hour winds expected. More than 147,000 people are without power in the northeast. Eric Van Dam joins us again this morning in Worcester, Mass. What? Ugh, I'm sorry. It looks bad. They're expecting a lot more. <laughs> Poppy, it was, it was a cold, miserable rain an hour ago. So really, what a difference an hour makes. What you're seeing behind me is actually a salt, burn, a salt barn in Worcester, Massachusetts. And this is where they house the salt and the brine that treats the roadways across the uh, county within this area. And literally just within this past hour, we have gone from a very very cold rain to a very heavy wet snowfall. You can literally see, I could squeeze out droplets of water from this uh, as these dump trucks continue to line uh, the plows with, with the available salts. Now, the concern going forward for this area is that this, I'm going to step down here quickly so my cameraman can follow me, is that this is starting to accumulate so quickly. Uh, National Weather Service saying two to three inches per hour. We're definitely realizing that here. And when you start to combine that with the 50 to 60 mile per hour winds that we're expecting, that is when we anticipate power outages to go up. Here's some of the salt trucks right now passing through. Again, starting to treat the roadways here. And uh, power outages already topping 100,000 for many customers across New England. We have a ground stop. Let's take you to LaGuardia so you can see what it looks like there. This is because they are busy de-icing the runways and the planes there as the cold air wraps in behind the system. And we start to see this transition from what was rain to now these massive snowflakes that are piling up very okay. fast and very furious. Talked, uh, uh, just talking to the local meteorologists here on the ground, and they are concerned about that sharp gradient about who gets the impacts and who doesn't? Boston, your rain likely to stay rain for the majority of this event. But you move inland, and that's where the snow piles up, up to okay. two feet uh, north and west of where I'm located. Thank you, Poppy. Derek. Thank you, Derek. We're getting worried about you. Man, please, Poppy please here. Please move to the sidewalk. <laughs> okay. You're getting, we're getting nervous for all the cars coming behind you. But great reporting. Thank you to you and your team. Done. Thank Poppy, you. we both were a little bit nervous. Yeah. Maybe the angle, it looks like he's closer, but I mean, I Derek, we want you to be safe. I'm safe. We're safe. We got a team here looking at me. All right. <laughs> Just, we're concerned. Mom and dad here. Okay, meantime, uh, joining us now, Worcester City Manager Eric Batista. Um, Mr. Manager, good morning to you, Mr. Batista. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So you've heard the reports. You heard our, our um, meteorologists out there. What are your biggest concerns right now for your residents? I think uh, right now the biggest concern for the residents is to make sure they stay home and they stay safe. 
Um, as, as Derek mentioned, we have about two to three inches falling every hour. There, that's what is expected right now. Some of the higher elevations of the city are about three to four inches already. Um, and so we have a, about 350 units right now out making sure that we're plowing the streets and treating the roads as best as possible. Yeah. So you said to make sure your residents are safe. What are you doing to make sure or to ensure that? Yeah, so we're communicating as much as possible through our social media, social platforms, uh, sending out any information uh, to them. We have uh, the fire department available if any people need assistance. Uh, police officers are available as well. Our inspectional services department for any pipes that might be bursting or any uh, of those uh, situations. And then we've also, one of the things that we do, we open up our municipal garages, allowing people to park for free in those spaces so they don't have to clear out their, their vehicles out in the room. All right. Uh, so listen, I, I think that you believe that you're well-positioned and well-prepared for this, but how long do you expect this to impact Worcester? Uh, we believe it's going to go take up all the way to the, to the night, um, if not 9 or 10 p.m. tonight, uh, and perhaps maybe in, into the later uh, early mornings of Wednesday morning. Uh, our hope is to make sure that um, the storm doesn't carry us out that far, uh, but we're right now we're expecting probably around 9 to 10 p.m. tonight. Worcester Mass City Manager Eric Batista. Thank you. Be safe. Thank you. You as well. Thanks. Also this morning, we're keeping an eye on the weather. Storm ravaged California is now facing its 11th atmospheric river of the season. Once the term that many of us weren't familiar with, but now you hear it, it feels like almost every day. Evacuation warnings are now being issued across parts of Los Angeles amid these concerns of flash flooding and mudslides. Mudslides, also a levee burst in the Pajaro River that prompted dozens of water rescues. Cars submerged up to their rooftops. Houses sitting in newly formed lakes. This was not here before. It might be months before some of these homes can be lived in again, though. I want to cry, but <laughs> what's crying going to do, you know? It's just sad. So sad. <laughs> now we all have to find somewhere else to stay at because we're not going to be able to come back home anytime soon. Look at it now. CNN's Veronica Miracle is live in Northern California. It was pounded with heavy rain overnight. We can see here literally standing in it. It looks like it's above your ankles. Veronica, what else is happening on the ground there? How are people dealing with this? Well, it's incredibly difficult, Caitlin, because about eight more inches are expected across northern and central California with this new storm coming in. Here in Pajaro, which is in Monterey County, the water level has actually receded by about a foot since yesterday, which is good news. It's because there was a second levee breach, and so some of the water has actually gone into the ocean, taking a little bit of pressure off of this community. But the sheriff here, Monterey County Sheriff, says that's not going to last long. This new storm coming in is going to bring those water levels right back up. About seven. 1,500 people have been displaced here in just this community alone. And over the last few days, they have had to conduct about 200 rescues, some of those because people refused to leave their homes, others because the water levels rose just too quickly. Here's what the sheriff had to say. When we give you an evacuation warning, please prepare to leave your pets, your medication, your valuables. And when we give you an order to get out, please get out. I get People have storm warning fatigue, and people think, well, this didn't happen in January, so it's not going to happen this time. Look, we can only give orders and warnings based on the best data we can. 
the sheriff was gracious enough to take us out and show us kind of how the community has been impacted. They've had to obviously get families out of their homes. They have not been able to go back for the most part to get animals that have been left behind. It's a really difficult situation here. Obviously, it's raining, but the worst of the storm is expected in the next couple of hours. And in terms of the floodwaters, these are not this is not expected to recede for at least another couple of weeks. Caitlin. Yeah. Storm warning fatigue. It's, it's a certainly a real thing. Veronica Miracle, thank you. Also this morning, we're going to talk about the medication abortion fight. It is now headed to a hearing. We may soon have an outcome, but the announcement was kept under wraps. Hmm. We'll tell you why next. Happening tomorrow, a public hearing in one of the most significant national abortion cases since Roe versus Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court. Federal Judge Matthew Kaczmarek in Texas is overseeing a lawsuit that could restrict access to the abortion pill across the country. He announced the hearing after reports that he privately tried to keep it under wraps. Our Paula Reed has been following this very closely. So this is one judge in Amarillo, Texas, who's going to make a decision for the whole country on the abortion pill, explain the significance, but also why he would try to keep it under wraps. Well, Poppy, as you know, the federal courts aren't exactly famous for transparency, but here the judge wanted to wait until the last minute to announce this hearing, reportedly to avoid disruptions. And to put this in context, his division, it's this tiny federal division in Amarillo, Texas. It's hours from any other cities. There's only a few direct flights. So if he was able to wait until the last minute to announce this hearing, it would limit the ability of anyone who wanted to go and attend this hearing to actually be able to be there in person. Now, several media organizations pushed to make this announcement public given the enormous public interest in this case and considering what is at stake. Medication abortion is the most common form of abortion in the United States. And here, this case, anti-abortion doctors and medical associations are challenging the government's approval of the drug used to terminate pregnancies. So this case could potentially block access to that medication even in states where it's legal. Now, the first part of this case involves a potential preliminary injunction. So right now, the judge needs to decide whether or not to suspend the approval of this drug while this case plays out. But again, this is a case with enormous national implications. So if we were to grant the injunction tomorrow at the hearing, that would put a pause on anyone being able to access it until it goes through the whole process, right? Yes. Now, it is likely that any such injunction would be appealed. There are a right. lot of concerns about nationwide injunctions generally. Should one judge, for example, here in Amarillo, Texas, yep. be able to decide something that has been approved for decades? So likely a lot of litigation ahead. But yes, that is the first step. But the Supreme Court did uphold that injunction, you know, last year when it came to sort of more more broad abortion restrictions in, in Texas. But Paula, before you go, the Justice Department also with a big announcement on the opioid front, they are suing Rite Aid around the opioid crisis. Is that right? That's exactly right. They are suing Rite Aid, arguing that they have violated the Controlled Substances Act by filling hundreds of thousands of prescriptions improperly for controlled substances, including opioids. They argue that the chain was ignoring red flags. In fact, in a statement, the Associate Attorney General, Vanita Gupta, said that Rite Aid's pharmacists 
repeatedly filled prescriptions for controlled substances with obvious red flags and alleging that Rite Aid intentionally deleted internal notes about suspicious prescribers, saying these practices opened the floodgates for millions of opioid pills and other controlled substances to flow illegally out of Rite Aid stores. They say specifically the chain ignored what is called the Trinity uh, prescriptions for excessive quantities of opioids such as oxycodone and fentanyl. Of course, Mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands of Americans have died as a result of opioid overdoses. Paula, thank you for the reporting on both of those significant developments. Also this morning, there's a notable shift from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, why he says Ukraine isn't a key foreign policy issue. The Biden administration has not been shy in its support of Taiwan, but why does the U.S. care about an island more than 7,000 miles away? Well, Will Ripley is going to join us live from Taipei to explain all of this. Don, a lot of people say that this democracy, this self-governing island is on the front lines of a potential battle between democracy and authoritarianism led by China. Former President Trump took his 2024 campaign to Iowa last night, where he sharpened his attacks against former current Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, someone who's expected to enter the race for the White House. Listen. Today, we have DeSantis, DeSantis, DeSantis. Now, Ron DeSantis strongly opposed ethanol. Do you know that? And we don't even know if he's running, but I might as well tell you. If he's not running, I'll say he was fine on ethanol. Don't worry about it. Well, there's that. This was Trump's first visit to Iowa since he announced his bid for the White House. It follows visits by DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, and Senator Tim Scott. A lot of visits to Iowa. Speaking of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, he is actually now providing the clearest indication yet of where he stands on a major foreign policy issue. This is news that broke overnight after DeSantis told Fox News' Tucker Carlson he actually kind of disagrees with where most in his party are on Ukraine. Instead, he sees it this way saying, quote, while the U.S. has many vital national interests like securing our borders, addressing the crisis of readiness with our military, achieving energy security and independence, and checking the economic, cultural, and military power of the Chinese Communist Party, becoming further entangled in a territorial dispute between Ukraine and Russia is not one of them. This is the thinking that DeSantis has. It actually is not that too far uh, unaligned with the stance of one of his potentially strongest potential rivals, which is former President Trump, However, this is what DeSantis is saying now as a 2024 hopeful. But back in 2015, after Russia illegally annexed Crimea and DeSantis was a congressman, this is what he said then, talking about President Obama, quote, we in the Congress have been urging the president to provide arms to Ukraine. They want to fight their good fight. They're not asking for us to fight it for them. And the president has steadfastly refused. And I think that's a mistake. As he is now saying, F-16s, long-range missiles should not be going to Ukraine. This really is one of the biggest points of the 2024 race. This is a very big deal that he came out and said this. It is going to be a, a very big point for the 2024 race. And speaking of, uh, the former president uh, is going to face facing some issues as well when he is possibly you know, going to come under indictment um, in here in New York. And you have his former fixers just reading it, um, testifying in front of a grand jury indictment for hush money pay- payments um, to the former, well, to the adult film star. So we are seeing the 2024 race shape up, even though Ron DeSantis hasn't officially thrown his hat into the ring. You have Donald Trump out there doing his same old thing that he's done in 16 and he did in 20. But then 
we have to figure out now, how are these investigations going to play into this? How are they going to play into this? Do we know? We don't know. I mean, that's actually what I think we've been talking about, which is the case in New York is not clear. It's not like a slam dunk for prosecutors. And so I think the concern that we've heard is if they do bring it and they're not, the prosecution's not successful, how Trump utilizes it and wields it in places like Iowa and on the trail. Yeah. Yeah. And Georgia. Yeah. Well, I mean, we know how he's going to do it. I am the most investigated uh, person, uh, political figure in history. The Democrats are after me. You know, it is Ron DeSanctimonious. I don't know if he'll blame Ron DeSanctim, whatever he calls him. It doesn't make sense. But he's going to blame, as everyone laughs, he's going to blame someone, right, other than himself for all of the investigations. So we'll see. Uh, in the meantime, we need to talk about what's happening this morning, the threat of Chinese invasion. That's also playing into this. Invasion of Taiwan is growing. If that happens, the U.S. has vowed to fight in Taiwan's defense. A battle between China and the U.S. over the self-governing island nation could result in devastating mutual losses, which is just one of the reasons Taiwan is a critical interest to both superpowers. Will Ripley joins us now with more. Hello, Will Ripley from Taipei. Tensions have been rising across Taiwan, the Taiwan Strait. Where do things stand now between China and the U.S.? Well, look, the United States under former President Trump and President Biden has been selling Taiwan billions of dollars in weapons, more uh, than ever before. They're trying to get weapons into this island so that it could defend itself, potentially, if China were to try to make a move. And you also heard the former president talking about he being able to prevent World War III. Well, President Biden, with this new submarine deal uh, with Australia and the United Kingdom, is hoping that there will be deterrence in this region and underwater power to prevent China from making a move on Taiwan. Chinese fighter jets screaming over its skies, military ships sailing off its coast, daily occurrences for Taiwan, living under the constant threat of a possible Chinese attack. Beijing's communist leadership claims Taiwan as part of its territory, despite having never ruled it. Tensions rising across the Taiwan Strait since Nancy Pelosi's visit in August. The first visit by a U.S. House Speaker to the island in 25 years. We will not abandon our commitment to Taiwan. Who can forget China's response last year, those days of large-scale military drills encircling the island, firing ballistic missiles over Taiwan? Analysts fear this may be repeated again next month. Taiwan's president, Tsai Ing-wen, expected to meet U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. So are you saying that, that the United States would come to Taiwan's defense if yes, China attacked? Yes, we have a commitment to do that. But the U.S. has reasons to worry about a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, protecting valuable semiconductor chips. Taiwan is a global leader in semiconductors, tiny chips that power everything from computers to cars. The island producing 70 percent of global supply, defending democracy. Losing democratic Taiwan to communist China would shatter U.S. credibility in the Indo-Pacific region. Protecting U.S. alliances, Asian countries would face an even more powerful China, a heavily surveilled police state with little freedom of speech. The stakes are indeed high, but experts do believe there's reason for optimism. Do you think the U.S. and China are headed in a positive, optimistic direction? The idea that conflict between the U.S. and China is inevitable, I, I, I strongly disagree with that. Meaningful channels of communication between the U.S. and the PRC 
Uh, that helps us minimize uh, unknowns. It helps us minimize confusion and misunderstandings. And ultimately, that, that, that's good for Taiwan. U.S.-China relations on a downward spiral since that suspected Chinese spy balloon bursting months of Beijing-D.C. diplomacy. As two Democratic allies, the U.S. and Taiwan get even closer. Taiwan's president and the third in line to the U.S. presidency meeting on American soil. As tensions escalate, all eyes will be on China. And where is this all headed? When you look at the U.S. expanding its military presence in the Philippines, encouraging Japan to expand the role of its own military, these, this nuclear submarine deal, uh, it is clear that the United States feels that deterrence in this part of the world is going to be crucial to prevent conflict with China. And China's rhetoric, Don, uh, is really sharp. From Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping all the way down, uh, China is blasting the United States. And it's, it's, it's apparently the external messaging matches what the, to, what the tone is internally. They've, they haven't reestablished those lines of communication since the U.S. shot down that spy balloon. No, they, they haven't. And I mean, that's been a big part of this is that they haven't had those conversations. We were just talking to Natasha about that earlier. And, you know, well, we're seeing President Biden tout this submarine deal. It's not a surprise. They talked about this. They announced this 18 months ago was a, a big deal certainly then, now that it's coming to fruition. But all of this is also happening with the background of what everyone in Washington was talking about this weekend, which is China brokering this diplomatic deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Yeah, you're seeing these power plays. Uh, the United States you know, is supreme when it comes to underwater power. So to have uh, nuclear submarines now, they're going to be rotating in Australia. Eventually, in 25 years, Australia can start producing its own uh, nuclear submarines. That changes the dynamic militarily here. Uh, China going to the Middle East, which traditionally has been uh, a stronghold of U.S. diplomacy, and trying to broker a deal. They're not the first, obviously, trying to broker a deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran. But it, but it is a it is a message to the United States, the fact that they were specific and clear that this none of the language would be in English when they were doing these negotiations. Uh, so that just goes to show that in and of itself, China's rising influence, whether the negotiations will be successful. It, it, you know, it's also happening in Africa where China is making economic investments. So it's economic and diplomatic power and military power. And you have the U.S. and its allies and you have China and Russia and other authoritarian countries really gearing up here uh, for, for this showdown. Both sides trying to outmatch the other. Uh, will it be deterrence or could it evolve into something more? And where would the flashpoint be? Certainly here in Taiwan, it's one of them. But there are plenty right now. Yeah, it's a scary look ahead. And we'll see where the influence game goes. Thanks, well, Will. Yeah. Okay, so we just got this reading on inflation we've been talking about all morning. Christine Romans with us. This was good, no? Yeah. <laughs> That's next. Um, Preview. I didn't realize it was I, a Sorry. Uh, All right, a number you are going to want to see, Justin, is the latest consumer price index report. That is a key marker of inflation that we have been watching for about a year now, and it's just been released for today. Christine Romans is here. She has the numbers. It eased a little bit. It eased a little bit. 6% year-over-year inflation. Look, that's way above the Fed's target of around 2%. But for eight months in a row, this number has been a little bit smaller than the month before. So 6% was 6.4% um, uh, last month. And month-over-month, 0.4% increase in prices. These are consumer prices. This is what you pay, folks. Um, remember, last month was a shock because it was half a percent, and people got very concerned about, uh, you know, 
re-inflaming inflation here. When you look at where we're seeing these price changes, gas prices went down a little bit year over year. That's good news. But food prices up 9.5% and shelter prices up 8%. The government's saying that 70% of the increase overall in inflation was shelter alone. So this is a rent wow. and a housing problem in terms of, of prices. You just had that Gabe Cohen piece about kids graduating from college and living home with their parents. That's why, because we have sticker shock in what it costs to pay for rent and to pay for housing. So these numbers, I think, come in in line with expectations. They're cooling a little bit, still too high. The big story now is what does the Fed do next? And with this banking turmoil, we have sort of the whole playing field has changed. So it's going to be really interesting in the next couple of weeks. The Fed next meets March 22nd. Yeah, to be a fly on the wall there. Exactly. Um, Christine Romans, thank you. Nice to see you guys. Okay, the sudden collapse of Silicon Valley Bank left thousands of business owners, startup founders really in the lurch. One of the companies is Urban Stems. You probably know them, right? They're on-demand flower delivery. You know those famous boxes. Um, The company has 150 employees started here in New York and Washington, D.C. They now deliver nationwide. They had 100 percent of their cash assets banked with SVB. So with us now is the CEO of Urban Sem, Seth Goldman. Thank you for the time. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for the flowers. Very welcome. An early text this morning, I said, can you bring some so people can, you know, see what you do? We talked a lot this weekend, you and I, about what you were going through, what your board was all considering, how this could happen. So what is the latest now for you guys with 100% of your money in this collapsed bank? Yeah, so we are, as you said, an on-demand flower delivery uh, service. We never considered that something like this would happen. Uh, The latest is as of about 6 o'clock last night, we got an email saying that SVB was back open for business uh, with a new CEO. Uh, I don't know exactly what that means. I'm trying to get in touch with our uh, our reps there, um, who are great, by the way. Our partners there were great. And they don't really know what's going on yet either. Can you explain to people how you got into this situation with SVB? Because so many of you guys, startup founders, banked with them, and you had 100% of your money with them. Why? Yeah, a lot of people say, why didn't you have money elsewhere? Uh, we also took a loan from SVB, and they were very uh, generous in terms of some of the terms, but one thing that was strict was that you had to bank with them exclusively if you took a loan from them. You had to put all your money there. All the money, effectively, yeah. So everything was at risk. Yeah. How does this change how you do business going forward? Because you had said, this is the last thing that kept you up at night, is would our cash not be safe? Yeah, uh, we are a flower business, so we're used to things happening. Before Valentine's Day, the Cotopaxi uh, volcano was active. So we were worried if that was gonna impact floral quality. Uh, and there was ash spewing from it, and, and it made you know, the sky's a little dark over the flowers. Those are the kinds of things that we are used to worrying about. You think about volcanic ash, not banks collapsing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we have a tough decision to make if we're going to stay with them or not. Oh, you're considering staying with SVB? Well, we're not sure if there are any risks to leaving. So, yeah. What do you mean by that? Uh, so we're not supposed to take our money out. We don't know exactly what it means right now, though. Says who? Says our loan covenants with SVB. But they're now regulated by the government. Yes, yeah, so we don't. They're now controlled by the government. Yeah, so we don't know exactly what any of it means. God, how do you run a business like that with all of these unknowns? So the first thing we did last late last week was we just made sure that we were going to be able to pay our people. After we did that, we made sure that we were going to be able to pay our critical vendors. Once we had a plan in place there, we calmed down and we said we're going to wait for the Fed. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and I actually give them a lot of credit. They acted pretty quickly and decisively. Um, what, how are your employees doing? I can just imagine what Monday 9 a.m. was like. Monday, you know, it was okay. We, we felt like everything was going to be calm, so I thought it was my job uh, to just stay very, very calm um, and absorb information, not panic. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I knew we were going to have a plan one way or another. Um, and, you know, thankfully things sort of worked out the way we kind of expected to. We just had um, Robert Altman on talking to Caitlin, the former high-ranking official at Treasury, who said what the, f- what the FDIC and the government did over the weekend is so breathtaking because they've essentially said all cash deposits at all U.S. banks are guaranteed by us anywhere above the $250,000 yeah. limit. You're nodding. That's like that's how you view it now. Yeah, I guess that's how we view it. And it's an odd thing to say, where are you supposed to put your money? I actually asked uh, after this happened, I said, where does Apple have their money? I I mean, I I just don't know. Is it with JP Morgan? Is it in, I'm sure it's in more sophisticated ways, but where were we supposed to put our money? But you feel like it's protected now by the government. We do. As much as you will put in any bank at this point. And we're probably going to have to change how we do that. We could never again agree to only have one bank uh, have all of our money. It, well, it's extraordinary. We're glad uh, you guys are okay. Keep, keep the flowers coming. Um, and thank you for, for talking to us, helping us understand what this means for Main Street. Thank you so much. And if people want to use this and, as an opportunity to send loved ones flowers, we'd love that too. <laughs> Mother's Day is around the corner. Mother's right? Day is around all the right. corner. Seth, thank you. Thank you. Very much. Don. Urban STEM. So... How long have you accidentally kept a library book? I have a story for you. Big story. Uh, a few months, a couple of years. Well, one person in Oregon may have you beat or maybe me beat. Harry Enton has this morning's number. Like you can read. Okay, so the question is, how many times have you checked out a book from the library, right? And you completely forgot to return it. Well, one borrow in Oregon really forgot a book that was checked out in 1979 finally made its way back to the shelves of the Deschutes Public Library with this handwritten letter luckily that library doesn't charge late fees but the person who checked it out gave a $20 donation Harry Enton with this morning's number 20 bucks 20 bucks yeah they deserve more than 20 bucks I mean I'm glad it got it back they deserve more than 20 bucks okay so so what's this morning's number this morning's number is 44 years. That was when the hockey trick, which was the book, was returned to this Oregon public library after it was checked out back in 1979. 44 years later. I want to give you an understanding of what was 44 years ago. So Tip O'Neill was the house speaker. Remember Tip O'Neill, the lion from Massachusetts? Billy Joel had the top album. Laverne and Shirley was TV's top show. Of course, the Bills didn't win a Super Bowl that year either. So <laughs> you managed to work them in. I always work them in. I guess the more things change, the more they stay the same. Though. Okay, so can I, should I tell you my story now? Or do you have something else you want to talk about? I'll, I'll give you a little bit more here. I just want to give you an understanding of the state of reading in America, right? Wow. So the adults who have read at least one plus book in the last year, in 2021, it was 75%. In 1978, it was 75%. So I think oh, there wow. might be this idea, right, that we're reading less. But in fact, we're reading the same amount of the same percentage of people are reading as they were, say, 44 years ago or 45 years ago. But the way we're enjoying books has certainly changed. Right. So in 2021, 65 percent of Americans read at least one book via print. 30 percent said an e-book, 23 percent audio. Compare that to just a decade ago when it was 72 percent who read via print. 
So e-books and audios have become much more popular, while print books have, in fact, become less popular. We're not reading the same way that we were. I wonder how many people are still going to libraries, too, because then there are beautiful libraries and communities that people... At- don't think they're taking advantage of Well, what's, what's so interesting to me is it turns out there are actually more public libraries now than there were 30 years ago. Yeah. So, look, they're not actually, public libraries aren't dying. They're thriving. There are over 9,000 now. There were a little less than 9,000 in 1992. Okay, so here's my story. Go ahead. So the first book I ever checked out, and my mom is watching and she knows, was a cookbook for yes. children. I almost burned the kitchen down with the recipes. <laughs> For making eggs. My mom got out of bed. She had to go and take the eggs off the stove. And then I guess I had a mental block for that book, and I kept it at least three to five years. And the library kept sending notices, and my mom said, you got to return this book. So I think they waived the fees, and then we ended up giving a donation. But I think I kept that book for like five years, and I almost burned the house down because of that book. I still almost burn the house down when I try and cook. So, you know, you did it when you were younger. I still do it when I'm older. So you're a better cook than I am, I'd say. <laughs> you know Caitlin and I returned all our library books early, oh. obviously. Oh, of course. <laughs> Goody two-shoes. Oh, my gosh. There. He took the words right out of my mouth. Boom! Got it. CNN Newsroom starts right after this. Boom! <laughs> Thank you. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 